Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, Dark Knight of the Podcast fans, friends, followers, and fags, dare I say. It's Fans Picket Month at Dark Knight of the Podcast. And I can't imagine a better way to kick off July, my birthday month. What a gift to me that I don't have to go through the stress of selecting titles. I'm going to let the fans do it for us. Troy and I have randomly selected several fans to pick the titles that we're going to review this month, July, all throughout the month. We have four titles lined up that we blindly selected. And let me tell you, they're all across the board. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. But yeah, we ran, we got, we, we got some great suggestions. I just put them in a random, a randomizer and picked the first four that popped up. So here we are. And this is such a yeah, you're right. It's such a, a a fitting title to kick off July because there is a lot of um, American flag imagery in this film, particularly on Listen. the lovely Mila Kunis. <laughs> Listen, I just got to be transparent real quick. I've been suffering through COVID for the last five days, suffering through COVID. I've had it. This is my third time. Third time's the charm for COVID because I feel like I was hit by a freight train. I've lost all sense of smell. Seriously, it's happened. Like, I could smell nothing. And it's been torturous. And the only thing I can imagine right now being more horrible to sit through <laughs> than a bout of COVID is having to sit through this godforsaken movie, American Psycho 2. Not, not only am I ailing in bed as I'm watching this, but I am watching this film that I have never before seen. That dares carry the title American Psycho, the sequel to the original American Psycho starring, as we know, Christian Bale. Um, I don't know who thought it was appropriate to slap that on this uh, piece of shit and claim that it is, in fact, a sequel to American Psycho. But here we are. Um, and it literally, I think, exacerbated my, my symptoms <laughs> significantly because I felt so much worse after watching the movie than I did before it. I think it literally magnified my COVID. So... I want to shout up a big fuck you to Slasher Junkie for <laughs> selecting this title, um, which he seems mighty proud of, by the way. Uh, but uh, here we are. We're about to dive in to American Psycho 2. How do you feel about that, Troy? Uh, we Well, hey, we love Slasher Junkie. We really do. <laughs> we do. But thank you for picking this title for us, um, because I, like you, I had never seen this film. Uh, I just kind of avoided it because I knew I just had a feeling when it came out and seeing the cover art and the trailer for it that it was going to be a giant piece of shit. And let's get one thing straight here. This is a, the paramount example of a studio trying to cash in on a much more revered film by slapping you know, the sequel American Psycho 2 title onto this film, because in my little research that I did, this was never supposed to be a sequel to American Psycho. In fact, when it was filming, it was called The Girl Who Wouldn't Die. 
Now, some executive at the studio got the harebrained idea that, hey, you know, that movie American Psycho is pretty well received. It's become a, a somewhat of a, of a classic, a modern classic. Let's just slap the title on this one and shoehorn in a Patrick Bateman subplot. Oh, and it did the film no favors, both this film and the one prior, because it's offensive to the original film. Let's be honest. It, it's it's uh, nothing like the original American Psycho. And and so in tone alone, it's, it's just horribly offensive to shift so uh, drastically into a completely different approach, you know? Tonally, this film is all over the place. It does not know what it wants to be. Um, it doesn't know if it wants to be a, a comedy, a, a horror comedy at some point, if it wants to be taken seriously. I, I don't know what the intent with this film was, but oh my God. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I just was in awe. I was just in awe of what yeah. I was watching. And it has nothing to do with like Mila Kunis's performance. She's fine. She's Mila Kunis. There's not much for her to bite into with this particular uh, character. It's like an extension of her Jackie character on that 70s show. And when she tries to make these one-liners that are supposed to be funny, it just comes off as super cringy and awkward. I'm ready to get into this film, Roger, because I have a lot to say about this film. But hey, if you are interested in knowing what our other picks are, for the month of July, head on over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Dark Night of the Podcast for just $2 a month. Come on, folks. Come on, gays. $2 a month. That is nothing. You will get access to see what our picks are uh, at the start of each month for the remainder of the month, and you will get a bonus mini episode every month. And we've talked about some great things, top Top three underrated final girls, top three underrated death scenes. We've talked about some great stuff. So show us some support. $2. Yeah. Maybe your title will be the one we selected this month. You're not going to know it until we drop it because we're not giving anybody any clue in until we drop the episode. This is a surprise month. Each episode's going to hit you like a fucking freight train out of nowhere. And you're going to be like, oh my God. That was my title, unless you're on the Patreon, and then you get a little clue as into what it could be uh, for the rest of the month. Uh, those are the only people who are going to be aware of the titles we're dropping this month. So um, if you want to know whether or not we picked your title for Fan Picks It Month, then you got to jump on over to that Patreon and drop some quarters down on the counter, um, because it is there waiting for you. But yeah, Troy, I agree. I really am... Uh, I'm very excited to talk about this title just because I feel so many passionate feelings about it. A lot of rage. I was in the midst of a medicated uh, uh, head fog as I as I viewed the movie, so everything was very heightened for me. I know you said that you don't mind Mila Kunis in this, and I'm someone who, who very much enjoys her, uh, but I found her voice to be absolutely grating from beginning to end over the course of this movie. I could not stand her, um, and I was really upset about that because I really enjoy her, but her evolution as an actress is, is evident since this film. And now because her, her dialogue and her monologues, her voiceovers, if I never hear a voiceover again, it will be too soon. Well, let's dive right into it because the film starts with a voiceover. It, it does. God damn it. With her basically talking about this connection that she had with Patrick Bateman when she was little, her babysitter, Claire, took her on a date to meet Patrick Bateman 
and he drugged her babysitter and tied her to the table and made her watch him basically gut her babysitter. And she managed to break free from her binds and get his ice pick and kill Patrick Bateman. Roger, this has to be the most <laughs> contrived uh, I connection to try to make it a, a, a true sequel to the uh, the original film. It's so contrived. It's so stupid. Like I have not seen I have not seen American Psycho for a long time, but I don't think Patrick Bateman would invite a woman with a kid along to his apartment. It just so out of character. It's like these writers never watched the original American Psycho to get a sense of the Patrick Bateman character. If you're going to use him as a tool to connect these two films, you better know the goddamn character. And that just seems something like Patrick Bateman would never do. Um, I also here, I will agree with you. I hate the cheerful tone of her voiceover. It just it right away. It, it just draws this stark tonal disconnect that carries through the entire film. Oh my god! There are so many things to unpack within the first five minutes of this movie alone. Um, first off, literally the first thing we see is a chick's head inside of a fridge. Like, and we're off. We're off to the races, and it really is like so thrown together. This opening is complete fucking nonsense it feels so disconnected from the original american psycho uh it is not at all in like uh homage or respect towards the original material you can tell they they literally just shoot it shoehorn it in there to have the title and the title alone because like obviously it's not quite fucking christian bale there ain't no way they're getting him in this piece of shit so they have this random guy like body doubling but the setup is so like forced and random and it doesn't make any sense as to how like she was even in the situation to begin with let alone that this like seasoned serial killer would like be bested by a child like it just feels so like not part of the the mythology of the character of Bateman like it doesn't I don't feel like he would at all fall victim to this little girl like he he's a, a, a seasoned murderer. He's been doing this for years and years. He has so many victims at this point. It makes him seem so weak and disposable right off the bat. Well, and it, and it also sets in motion a another issue that runs through this movie is, okay, so you're trying to tell me that this little girl took an ice pick. She wasn't wearing gloves. She stabs him and she's able to walk out of the apartment and nobody ever connects her to being in the scene for a film that so heavily relies on this like FBI Quantico theme where the main character wants to be an FBI agent and she's so savvy into you know what it takes to become that and it just makes zero sense that she keeps killing all these people and is not caught. Well, and then she even says, she's like, and I walked right out of the building and no one ever suspected I was there. Somebody actually sees her, like, leave. So it's like, I heard a scream. Like, a, a neighbor, like, pops their head out and asks and they, like, see the child. And, like, how do they not identify this child? Forensics were a thing. I mean, that's the issue. Forensics were a thing. You're, you're trying to tell me they didn't take fingerprints. They didn't do anything. They didn't do any DNA to try to figure out who killed him. Come on. And that carries through the entire movie. The FBI must be fucking stupid 
and we will get to that when we get to the end, the, the fucking ridiculous ending of this film. Oh my god! I oh my god. about punched my TV screen. We'll get to that. Um. So basically, that's the setup. That's how they connect the two films. She killed Patrick Bateman as a child, and she has become fixated on becoming an FBI agent. Her whole her sole goal is to get accepted into Quantico, the FBI training program. So she now attends West Washington College, which apparently has the most prestigious behavioral science program in the nation. And she is being taught by Professor Robert Starkman, played by none other than William Shatner, who is apparently one of the most renowned FBI serial killer hunters in history. And he became a teacher because he could not... I'm sorry. He became a teacher because he could not solve the Patrick Bateman murder. <laughs> Even though the little girl was in the apartment, DNA would be everywhere. So how the fuck is he a prestigious FBI serial killer hunter and he couldn't catch a fucking little girl? I, I'm sorry. It's- She's right under his nose the entire fucking time. Like, it is, it is so implausible. And it gets more implausible as it goes on. Like... If you think it sounds absurd just from us telling you, watching it is significantly worse because I we can't really put into words just how far-fetched this whole setup really is. Um, and I think one of the, the worst aspects and the most offensive things to the original movie is when you think about the original American Psycho in general, beginning to end, that film possessed like a, a, a level of like sleekness and elegance to how it was shot, how it was executed, every aspect about it. Because it was telling the story of like the upper class elite. It felt upper class. It felt sophisticated. It felt shiny and pretty. You saw a lot of that world. And it felt because of that, it felt big budget. This movie is like a bottom of the barrel direct to DVD. Like she's talking about this college being like the best in the nation. And like this girl is on like a low end, like community college campus. Like this building, this college campus is so subpar. It is not at all impressive. It is like really like just kind of like a frumpy college campus. No offense to this actual college, but I don't buy it. I don't buy it right off the bat. And it really is like everything about the original movie that they tried to mimic in this film is done to such like a lesser degree, like a, um, a step down in quality, even down to like the, the narrations, the voiceovers, because they are so prominent. And like, I do need to take a moment to acknowledge these voiceovers because they are omnipresent. And Mila Kunis sounds like she's four years old and her voice is constantly just droning because they're having to explain this absurd plot as it goes along. Whereas in the original film, Bateman, you're following it like his internal dialogue. He was telling you about how he goes through his day, how calculated he is, why he makes the choices he makes. In this case, with the character of Rachel, you just get this this squeaky, shrill voice that's really difficult to listen to. Whereas Bateman's was almost like, it was like ASMR-like in a way. And I hate saying this because I really do love Mila. I do. I think she's amazing. But God, I just, I couldn't stand her in this. And and the narration is one of the worst elements of the film. And that's such like a, an Achilles heel for this movie. Because again, with the original movie, it lets you into Bateman's world. It lets you get a better understanding of who he was and why he worked the way he did and why he was kind of unraveling at times. This character, she's just a complete narcissist. That's all she has going for her. She's very selfish. You don't get any like inkling that she's starting to lose a grip 
or any inkling that she has any doubts in herself. All she has is her infatuation with this this one plot point that's about to come up here with William Shatner. Uh, that That's literally the only driving force she has, nothing else, and it makes her character so unlikable. It just absolutely destroys the film. Her character is wretched. She's just miserable. I can't support her in any way whatsoever. She's not an anti-hero. I don't strangely want to root for her or see her succeed in any way, shape, or form. She's just a spoiled little bitch that likes to kill people. That's all. Mm. I mean, perfectly said. I mean, I mean, yeah, the character itself is, I mean, you nailed it. It's not a character that you, I had any attachment to any interest in there's nothing charismatic about it um hearing her whine and bitch and, and complain the entire movie about how she's a shoe in to be this ta i was just like shut the fuck up like give me some more depth like it's such a one-dimensional character anyway so you bring up that plot point the reason why she is at this college and in this class by professor starkman is because she is determined to become his TA because nine out of the 10 of his last TAs got accepted early into Quantico. And she, as she lets us know 50 fucking times in the movie, thinks she's a shoe in for this. I, she does say she has some competition. And right away, you know where this is going, right? Um, she has Cassandra, who is sleeping, we find out, with... <laughs> Professor Starkman, okay. And isn't that Lindy Booth, right? Yes, it's Lindy Booth who looks awkwardly blonde. I only want my Lindy Booth as a ginger redhead, by the way. Only as a redhead. And then we have Brian, cocky Brian, who he's in the running because his dad is apparently rich. He keeps asking people, do you know who my dad is? Do you know my dad? But we never find out like what his dad does that makes him so fucking rich. Okay. There's him. And then there is Keith, who is intellectually on the same level as, as her, although she does make the quip that they do spat in class. They get in little spats all the time and she always wins. Keith is a character who, I mean, let's be real. None of these characters are really well developed, but um, they set Keith up to be a character that you anticipate is going to get more focus. And then what happens to that character, I think is, offensive i mean like the way the way this character meets his demise because i'm just gonna be straightforward this character meets a demise and uh it is so fucking lackluster um and that's one thing i find with a lot of the characters overall though is like they set them up to be plot points they're plot tools and that is all none of these characters really have anything going for them other than the the potential to be killed by the character of Rachel. And it, it just makes it for a situation where there's really nobody to really root for. Like, none of these characters are really likable. She sits down and points out all of their flaws first thing right off the bat. Like, you know, she points out that Candace is sleeping with the professor and instantly it's painted in a very negative light. Uh, she paints out that uh, that Brian is, you know in his position that he is within within uh, the school, that he is a, a top-tier student simply because he's been bought into it, that his daddy pays for it. So he is very selfish, very like self-indulgent as well. He's made to be a very unlikable character. There's not like a character here that you find to be at all redeeming or supportive. Eventually, you do get introduced to a professor character that is, I think, would I would say the closest to be 
that character in the storyline, but it's none of her fellow students. There's nobody amongst her in her class that is remotely likable. Uh, and that's another big Achilles heel here in this story. It's really hard to root for anybody here. Well, her suspicions about Cassandra are confirmed when she wa- uh, stays after class out in the hallway and watches the professor in his classroom give Cassandra this silver heart-shaped pendant. Bitch, I, she got, he got that necklace from Kohl's. Like, that is the lamest fucking pendant necklace I've ever seen. He literally could have walked into a Kmart, got it off the, like, the sales clearance section, and like paid two ninety five for that cheap steel necklace, which is mentioned later that it is it's not even silver. Like it is not at all impressive. And Lindy Booth is just like, ooh, ah, my new heart necklace that my sixty five year old lover bought for me. <laughs> I mean, I had a problem thinking that this professor would be that blatant to give her this pendant out in the open. Oh, and I had a problem with Lindy Booth being so infatuated with a William Shatner to begin with. (laughs) So Rachel goes back to her dorm room and is filling out the application to be this teaching assistant. And again, her voiceover is just hounding us about how, oh, this is just a formality. I'm a shoe in I'm just doing this because I have to fill it out. There's nobody else has a chance. So, she goes to turn in the application at the the professor's office to give it to his secretary. And she's outside the door and she hears Brian having a very heated discussion with this woman because she is telling him that his GPA is not nearly high enough to be considered for the TA position. So he might as well not even turn it in. And of course, he's pissed. He comes storming out of the room and he sees... Uh, Rachel sitting there, he's like, God damn her. I should bash her fucking brains in. And he sees that there's an employee of the year or month plaque on the wall that clearly shows this woman. Her, we find out her name is Gertrude Fleck. Probably the highlight of the film for me. Oh, absolutely. She reminded me sort of a Kathy Najimy character. I think that this is the only woman in the entire film, to be honest with you, that really knew what type of film she was in. Do you get what I mean? Oh, absolutely. As like she like took it and she ran with it. Oh yeah, everyone else was taking this fucking stupid fucking movie so seriously, and this woman got it. So whoever you are, Gertrude Fleck, bless your heart because you were the highlight of the film for me. So Rachel goes into and turns in her application, and we see this Gertrude Fleck in her very colorful outfit and her permed hair, and she says right away when she sees Rachel's application, she's like, "What's this?" Rachel's like, what? She's like, you're a freshman. We don't allow freshmen to be TAs. (laughs) And of course, Rachel's arguing with her and Gertrude is having none of it. Like she is standing up to this girl. She's like, you know what? You're freshmen. um, They get homesick and they have too much on their plate. Here, take this brochure. And it's a brochure on 10 steps a freshman can do to beat, to make their first year successful. Again, Gertrude is not having any of this at all. One thing that really um, I think is worth mentioning here regarding Rachel's character that really comes out in this scene is not only is she extremely overly confident and self-obsessed in her like internal monologue that we constantly hear rambling over the course of the film, but she's the exact same way when she communicates with characters face to face. Like she is completely 
steadfast in the idea that she is deserving of this TA position and she will not be um, uh, told otherwise. Like that is the only thing she has in her sights. If anybody doubts her, she becomes very argumentative. And honestly, for that to be the driving like focus for this character, for that to be her main story arc, it is so fucking lame like can we take a moment to really just acknowledge how lackluster her like driving motivation is her sole goal over the course of this movie is to become this professor's ta so that she can get into this you know uh school that will ensure her this position within the fbi because what she really wants to do is become uh somebody who is able to basically like track serial killers she thinks like that's her calling in life because she knows she is one so she wants to use her her serial killer instincts for the like purpose of good and anything that she does along the way to get there is uh simply like it's something it's simply disposable it has to be done so that she can ensure she gets this position that's how she like excuses it but for this to be her sole motivation it's so boring (laughs) like it really it's like so like out of left field, she's like, I will become this TA, and I will get to this. What is the name of that school that she wants to go to? It's Quantico. Quantico. It's, yeah, it's the FBI training school. Yeah, she wants to get into Quantico, and this is like her foot in the door. But like, it's just so like lame. Like, it it doesn't make her character seem any more endearing. It doesn't make her character seem like she has like a really like solid reason for killing people. And then some of the decisions she makes along the way completely like prevent this from being possible. <laughs> like there is no way that she's going to get this TA position after like halfway into the movie, you know, it's not possible because some of the things she's done, but she's still unwavering on the stance that she's going to go to Quantico. Uh, it's mind boggling. Well, the ego, th- I mean, this girl has such a huge ego and she she's a perfectionist. Like she talks about how she maintained a 4.0 grade point average all through high school so that she could get to her goal. You would think that this TA position would not be so important to her because if she didn't get it, guess what? The way she presents herself is she is a determined hardworking, you know, she's going to do what she can to get into the program. You don't even really need this teaching position then, do you, right? Shouldn't your hard work and your grades and your determination allow you to to probably get in the program on your own merit without having to have this teaching position? So it really is just such a loose plot point to try to connect all this together. And the fact that she talks about it constantly constantly is just grating it's all she has it's the only plot point she has so after this little spat with gertrude we do see gertrude leaving work and someone follows her wonder who that could be they they try to do a little you know pull the wool over our eyes for a brief second after this scene but it, it doesn't work um so gertrude gets home and i love that she has a cat named ricky martin whom she calls by like full name ricky martin Ricky Martin, Ricky Martin. So whoever this was apparently got, even though they don't know this Gertrude woman. Okay. So we see this person following Gertrude home, right? You would assume that the killer would not know Gertrude or where she lives. However, they are able to get into Gertrude's house before Gertrude does. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, How did they get to 
how did they get to her house before she did not knowing where she lived whatever there's so many fucking ridiculous stuff like that that takes place in this film whatever okay so she's go she's walking around her house uh calling out for ricky martin her cat and we see someone put the cat in the microwave and i was like fuck if you do this to ricky martin uh, i'll be pissed <laughs> yes now again it doesn't take a long time for something to die in a microwave okay if you put something in the microwave it's gonna however we see the, the person put the cat in the microwave set the timer for 15 minutes and turn the microwave on as gertrude is wandering around the house trying to find the cat when she hears it meowing and she gets to the microwave and the cat has had to have been in that microwave for 30 seconds at this point it would have been dead however she opens the microwave gets the cat out thank god the cat is fine i would have been this movie would have pissed me off even more if that cat would have gotten killed, I know it's terrible, but people being killed in movies, whatever, don't put a cat in the microwave. Um, but as she takes the cat out of the microwave, someone comes up behind her and basically beats her to death with that employee of the month plaque. And can we just talk about the death scenes in this film being extremely lackluster and that the, the score that plays over them is completely inappropriate. The score for this entire fucking movie is completely inappropriate. It, it it's all over the place. Well, and I gotta say, we are we are all over the place with this review, and I acknowledge it. Like it is hard to stay on track with this movie because there are so many things wrong with it. But I am like jumping notes. I'm all over the chart with this, and it, it's hard to really maintain a proper review with this movie because there are so many things that are annoying me about it simultaneously all at once i'm trying to pit on all of those things while also giving a proper like analysis of the storyline and it's just very difficult for our listeners i'm sure but i want to make it clear i'm really trying to keep the train on the tracks here uh but first off let's focus on the kills because agreed that is a huge issue with this movie this film the original film first of all the original american psycho i would not ever categorize it as a horror film or a slasher it focuses on a killer who is a serial killer but it's a character study it's more of an analysis if anything um but you do go throughout the process and you see him go through the process of killing people and when he does kill people in the original movie they spend a lot of time with it you see him set the whole thing up you see how neurotic he is how fucking what a loose cannon he can be when he gets pushed to the edge that whole sequence with the chainsaw the nude chasing down the hallway when he throws the chainsaw down the stairwell like that is an epic sequence that is a memorable scene if you want something of that caliber in this movie i'm sorry you're not going to get anything even remotely near it the kills in this movie are all very disposable most of the time they are off camera or they're done in a way where it is um it's never really shown what's happening in the moment much like this scene we're about to dissect with with the uh, character of um, of Gertrude. Uh, because the buildup isn't awful. I mean, you do get a whole thing of her walking through her house, suspecting that someone might be in there. And then all of a sudden, the camera rushes in on her and boom, she drops to the ground. And everything takes place in the reflection of the microwave. And you see a hooded silhouette like beating her with something. But you don't get any of the gore, any of the violence. You don't see anything to do with the actual like beating. You just see it all in silhouette in the reflection. And it's definitely like a moment where you, the viewer, are like very let down. You're like, ugh, is this all I'm going to get? And the answer is yes. Throughout the whole movie, that is all you're going to get. You are never going to get a quality 
kill sequence in this movie. You're never going to see anything that comes remotely close to the caliber of setup you got with the American Psycho, uh, the original film. It's just not even, uh, it's not even close to the execution. Well, let's be honest. The the filmmaker did not care to try to replicate the first film. This film is only called American Psycho 2 as a cash grab. That is it. Yeah. They did not care about carefully constructing a, a story and giving us um, you know, a, a character study on the mind of a young female serial killer. They did not care about that. They didn't care about making the film look artistic and giving us artistic shots like the first film had. They didn't care about any of that. They slapped the title on as a money grab. That's it. So, I mean, you can't expect them I mean, it's just, it's offensive. It's offensive. Well, and now let's talk about score because you brought up another very valid point. So there's this track, this very late nineties, early two thousands track playing in the background of the scene. And it goes along the lines of something like this, bad things, bad things, sad things have to happen. And it, it is so like disjointed from what's going on in the sequence that any potential suspense or like fear factor that maybe could have existed is leached out of the moment. And you'll find that something else that is rampant throughout the course of this movie. The score, the soundtrack is pretty much, I feel like any songs of the era that they were able to get their hands on, they took them and they ran with them and they just threw songs willy nilly in over the course of this movie all over the place. This whole soundtrack sounds like it came right out in 1998. Uh, It sounds very, um, like pop rock, like often very feminist pop rock. There's like a lot of like female driven rock bands in this, but it again does not fit the tone of what's happening at all. So like the movie has one really off tone that it really can't find its footing. The score, the music is going a completely different direction when it's not actual soundtrack. It's like MIDI files that are very like digital and like slapped into the sequences, like awkwardly, like forced into certain scenes. They sound very cheap. The movie itself is bad. The music is even worse. And so that's just dragging it down. This has one of the worst scores I've ever heard, to be honest with you. Yeah. In terms of yeah. a film score. And when you when you're when you're scoring a film, you know, the music should create a tone and, and match what's happening in the film. And this it does the complete opposite. Can we talk about later on in the film when there's some chase seeds? You get that Looney Tune Three Stooges cartoonish score that's playing over it and it's so inappropriate. It just oh fuck this film. Okay. So Gertrude is dead. And I, I have to point something out at the end of this film that makes zero fucking sense again. So we'll come back to poor Gertrude. But I like Gertrude. She's dead now. Eh. The scene cuts right away to someone knocking on Rachel's dorm door as she's working. And she opens the door. And lo and behold, it's cutie Brian who is wearing the exact same hoodie that we just saw the killer wearing when he killed Gertrude or when they killed Gertrude. And remember... Brian said he should bash her fucking brains in, and that's what happened. Are we supposed to think Brian's the killer? Because huge fail. I mean, I don't think they're trying to fool anybody in the audience at any point to thinking that anybody is killing anybody other than Mila Kunis here. I I know, I know. That's my point. Is like, why then? Why put him in this hoodie and make him look like a suspect? You have your you have the fucking killer Mila Kunis on the cover of the DVD holding a fucking sickle. It's obvious she's the killer. There is no need for him to be in this get up to try to maybe convince us that he's the killer when we know damn well he isn't. 
fucking stupid. Well, and I think something worth saying, though, Troy, like something worth acknowledging is the fact that all of the association and tie-ins to the original American Psycho were kind of an afterthought. Like that whole opening sequence and so forth. Um, I'm curious if they, you know, add, in adding her voiceovers and everything, um, some of these things maybe came after some of the production. I don't know how late into the production they shifted gears and made this something that was uh, a bit more rooted in the American Psycho universe, because some of William Shatner's dialogue within the classroom settings do discuss uh, his infatuation with Patrick Bateman. Some of his dialogue with her later in the film also touches on that. But there are moments like this where I feel like the storyline was almost maybe going a different, slightly different direction, where you were having some red herrings, where you weren't completely sure of who the killer was to begin with. And I think that that's something that Obviously, with the with the storyline now being tied into the uh, American Psycho universe, that's all thrown out the window. It's no longer relevant. And so it does just make for this awkward, like, are they trying to go for something here? Because it just doesn't land. It doesn't find its footing. Maybe in the original uh, adaptation of the script, as it was originally written, maybe that did make sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, that could very well be. I don't know when they shifted gears and decided that it was going to be American Psycho 2 instead of the girl that wouldn't die. I, I don't know, but that could be very well explain the this whole sort of red herring thing. But Brian shows up. He's he's a little cutie. You know, he's cocky. He wants to go. Basically, he asks her to go to dinner with him because he wants to discuss. He has some dirt on who. Uh, is in the running for the TA position. So he asked her to go to dinner. Initially, she says no, but he convinces her. He's like, I'm not taking no for an answer for a second time today. And then he mentions, because we have to have a douchey, we have to make him douchey, right? He mentions, uh, uh, are you going to ignore this sexual tension between us? I'm like, why make him? Come on. Can he just be a cocky, you know, without drawing without going over that line to try to make him seem like he's like this sexual predator type douche that is just once in her pants when he really he does he does mention that he was just kidding that that comment was a joke but it just ugh. yeah but no character in this is really likable or or endearing in any in any way like i don't think anybody has a trait that makes them um someone you want to root for you know, well, there's one the old, the elderly mother, the psychiatrist, elderly mother with her sensible. Oh hat. my god, with that hat! I do love her with that hat. Well, and another thing I want to say here, though, in this moment, Troy, like this is one thing that I think also um, it does great fault to the film. The only time that Rachel does seem likable is when she's manipulating people. Like early in the movie, you get this whole sequence of her strutting across the campus, stealing cigarettes from people for one hit and then throwing them on the ground and making comments about people. But in this moment, when she realizes that she is going to basically take advantage of of this character so she can inevitably kill him, she's basically trying to woo him so she can off him. Um, for a moment, she starts to become a little more pleasant. She's uh, less cold. She's a little bit warmer. Uh, but she's using this all as like kind of a ploy to get him to trust her a little bit more, as you learn. Um, and that really sucks because there's a second where you're like, oh, maybe she is a human being. Maybe she does operate like a normal person and have feelings. No, it's just a ploy. And she's just doing this so she can kill this man. Uh, there's nothing more to it. She is just a robot with no feelings whatsoever. It's too bad, too, because actually I think these two characters have 
some good chemistry together, particularly in their restaurant scene. And she genuinely does, when they get back to her dorm room, seem interested in him. Uh, but yeah, it's it's all for a, a, the goal of offing him so that she doesn't have him as competition for the TA position anymore. Um, so, so she finally agrees to go to dinner with him. She says she tells him to pick her up at eight, and he's all excited and giddy about it. Uh, she is getting all primped up for this date and looking all nice, doing her hair and everything. And Cassandra is asking her about where are you going for spring break? And she's like, No, I'm I'm staying here. My parents are coming to visit, so I'm just going to do some work around here. Cassandra mentions the fact that she is going to a cabin in the woods for the weekend with Bobby, who is the professor. Again, this is William Shatner, folks. This is not like, I mean, this girl, young 20-year-old girl is infatuated with William Shatner. What powers does he have over this woman? I don't know. But even, even Rachel's like, quit calling him Bobby. And, you know, how do you think his wife and kids are going to feel? And she's like, well, I'm tired of his wife and kids. They take up too much of his time. I'm like, really, bitch? Because they're his wife and kids. What do you expect? Though I will say Lindy Booth does her best work when playing like bitchy, controlling, narcissistic, or judgmental roles. Like think of her in Cry Wolf, remember? Like she she is actually quite good in this film. She's not given a lot to work off of, but I like her. I think she's really great in this kind of uh, character mold. I just wish she did more. And I wish she was a redhead while doing it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Cassandra also asks Rachel why or how did she end up going out with Brian? And Rachel's like, oh, well, when, my, when, I, when our eyes met for the first time, I knew we were soulmates. And Cassandra's like, really? And Rachel's like, nope, just kidding. Uh, I mean, it's just just weird little quirky bits of dialogue that pop in throughout the film that really serve no purpose. Uh, now, now we get their dinner date. And this is where the film, I don't know, could have used some editing or script revisions because we get literally a whole like three minute scene of them ordering drinks and this awkward waiter that comes into play again, multiple times. I know. <laughs> what is the deal with this waiter? Oh, I thought like, he was going to be a more prominent character. I thought this was going to be her love interest or something. The way they introduced this guy. I mean, he's just awkward. Like he, they ordered these drinks. Okay. And the waiter comes and brings a drink and then just stands there awkwardly for a minute. He's like, this is my first day. <laughs> And they're all like, okay. And he's like, what do you want to order? And they're like, no, give us some time. So over this dinner, Brian tells her, I hope you know that I am very determined to get this TA position. And I hope that we can still remain friends no matter what the outcome is. And she's like, oh, well, that's very kind of you, Brian. And he proceeds to tell her that he knows that Cassandra will be out of the running because he has found out that she is having an affair with the professor. And if she does get the position, he is going to send some pictures of evidence of the professor and Cassandra to the Dean so that she will be removed from the position anyways. And then someone else will have to get it. He also then proceeds to show her a newspaper clipping, even though it just looks like it was printed on some off of a home computer. I mean, this thing doesn't look legit at all. 
And it is an announcement about his dad pledging $8 million to the new um, West Washington Behavioral Studies building. And he's showing it to her as basically evidence that he will end up getting the position because his dad is throwing all this money at the college. And she smiles at him and, you know, you can see her thought, you know, she's like, oh, you fucking little prick. And then he proceeds to offer her seven digits if she drops out of the race to become the TA. This scene to me, Troy, really, if any scene in this movie is trying to be something out of um, the original American Psycho, I would say this scene is trying the hardest to capture the kind of vibe of the original film because it's like a power play between these two characters when he brings up the money and everything. And since the original film dealt with a lot of like wealth and status and so forth. So this definitely, I think is trying to capture that, but between like the, the significantly weaker dialogue, um, the lackluster production value, the far less impressive interior (laughs) restaurant (laughs) than we would have gotten the original film. Um, and the MIDI score, again, at play, um, it just doesn't come close. But I think here they maybe were trying to kind of capture that whole um, competitive power play between two characters, because you saw that a lot in the original movie with the business cards and like the different ivory business cards. Remember that? And the type of paper they were printed on dictating just how powerful a person was. Like, this is definitely like that for children, <laughs> Like, this is, like, definitely watered down. But I do, like, see what they're trying to do here. It's just, it can't hold a candle to the original dialogue, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that their their target audience for this film were definitely younger, younger genre fans. I think that, you know, casting Mila Kunis was very intentional. I mean, she was hot in that 70s show, which was a show that was popular with kids. So, yeah, everything just feels so much, yeah, like you said, just watered down. This is just a, a just such a generic by-the-numbers film. There's nothing memorable about it. Um, she quotes a Bob Dylan lyric to him, and basically the, the lyric is, I'll let you be in my dreams if I can be in yours. And I'm assuming that was her way of telling him that she would, take the money you know she's trying to lure him back to her uh dorm room so that she can do her business so i think that was her attempt at telling him telling him okay yeah i'll do it you know even though she knows very damn well what she's going to do so they go back to her dorm room and i mean they begin to kiss pretty passionately she starts unbuttoning his pants gets down on her knees like she's gonna blow him and he's like wait i don't have any condoms so then there's this whole back and forth about, well, I could go to the store, the convenience store and get them. Oh, wait, no, I'll run to my roommate. His his uh, dresser drawer is like prophylactic central. And I don't know about you, Roger. Have you ever called have you ever called a condom a prophylactic? What college kid is going to use that word? Oh, the dialogue. The dialogue in the over the course of the whole film, though. I mean, like no one's winning any awards for this script. I'm, I'm going to say it right now. The whole way this kind of plays out, you know, she puts on her hoodie. She's like, oh, I'll go get condoms for my roommate. It's totally fine. Like, she's super casual about it. And you know, because you've seen enough of of her at play now, like, you know that she's 
not acting natural for her character. Like, it's very out of place for her to want to be sexual with this guy to begin with, let alone to be so willing to be like, oh, I'm going to go grab a condom. It's no big deal. So, like, what happens here is not at all a shock or surprise. No, she leaves. He lays on the bed. There is a, a, a kind of a little fun thing where he realizes that her sheet on the bed is plastic and he's like, Oh God, a piss sheet. And then we do get a glimpse of a picture on the nightstand of a girl with a dog. And it's sort of out of focus. You can't really see who it is, but he notices it, picks it up. And I, I I'm assuming the assumption is it's not her, right? Because there is a revelation that happens, you know, later on in the film. Okay. And then he sees that fucking ice pick another ice pick and as he picks it up to look at it she comes up behind him with a rope and proceeds to strangle him to death right there on her bed it is not a rope troy it is a condom she uses a condom oh, that's a condom because then she cracks the joke afterwards she says rib oh, oh come for on her pleasure you're trying to, are you okay i did not that's catch a strong that. fucking condom i did not catch that it was the condom that she strangled him with i thought that she oh. just i thought she had the condom in her hand as she was strangling him because she oh, did no, go, watch it back oh it's my I, no roger i'm not watching that's a horrible <laughs> suggestion no i'll i'll, I'll trust your uh your but oh, come on. Okay, so that makes it even more fucking ridiculous. She strangled a condom? Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, she, she, she does have a one-liner where she goes, ribbed for her pleasure. Uh, and that's that's the end of that. <laughs> He's dead. Oh, my God. I, just when I thought this movie couldn't get any fucking stupider. Okay. Uh, she's dragging his body out of the dorm. Okay. And can we just, again, I just want to mention, this is this is supposed to be the most revered behavioral science school in the nation right their security and and video you know surveillance is severely lacking because several people get murdered on this campus without anybody fucking knowing nobody sees this girl dragging a body out of the camp out of the dorm room we see her dragging it down the stairs and she's talking about how basically brian had to die that's another fucking voiceover and she's saying i just have to kill a few to save the many because you know this is going to get me into Quantico and once that once I'm there I'm going to save probably thousands of people from serial killers because I'll be hunting serial killers so these this is just a little bit of collateral damage I'm kind of like Robin Hood for the most part nobody over the course of this film ever questions people going missing like ever like a lot of people are mysteriously dispatched over the course of multiple days. And aside from the professor looking into Cassandra eventually, because let's be real, she's about to die. I'm just going to spoil it right now. I don't think anybody ever brings up like Brian missing, Gertrude missing. Like these are key people who like Gertrude is is the professor's assistant. Yeah, and it's like, never mentioned. Why is it never to, mentioned? She didn't show up to work. Wouldn't people be like, hey, where's Gertrude? She's supposed to be here to take these t- teaching applications. The professor never fucking mentions it. Ever. Nobody no, mentions it. No one's at all looking into anything. <laughs> it's mentioned later on in the film, but there is a huge, huge uh, g- goof that they make with the Gertrude, and I, I cannot, I, I just, oh my god, it just shows the incompetence behind this film. So poor Brian's dead. She says she's almost like Robin Hood, and then she makes the quip, "I really need some professional help." And then we cut to her the next day at a psychiatrist's office. Daddy, psychiatrist. 
Dr. Daddy Daniel. psychiatrist indeed. Mm-hmm-hmm. He is probably the most grounded character in the film, the one that you can relate to. Like, there's nothing really bad about him. He seems full of good intentions. Like, he's not like, ha- he doesn't really have ulterior motives or anything like that. But even he, right away, as she's talking to him about why she's there, he is recognizing right away that this girl is a sociopath. Like she is just all she's talking about is how she deserves this TA position. And he is, you know, quipping back at her and she's like, I, because I deserve it. I've worked hard. Uh, And he's, he asks her if you could be anybody in the world for a day other than yourself, who would you be? And her answer is Elizabeth McGuire, who was introduced earlier as the professor's current teacher assistant who just got accepted into Quantico. Oh my God, this connection is so thin. Like maybe if they would have emphasized the character of Elizabeth more, it would have made it more like impactful. But as it is, you barely see her. Elizabeth doesn't have any dialogue up to this point. Um, she's not a presence really in the in the film. Uh, it's not like she's like tracking her or watching her progress. You only see her kind of in the background for the most part. So when this comes up, you're kind of like, wait, what? Who the fuck are you talking about? Um, I do also want to point out that this pro- uh, this um, doctor, Eric, uh, he's very much like a poor man's Eric Dane. Uh, he's serving me Eric Dane vibes, but like a knockoff version, which I'm here for. Like I can roll with it. And he's actually like quite good in the role, uh, which I mean. He is, he gives the best performance in the film. He, yes. I mean, good for him. <laughs> good for him that he's able to transcend here over the rest of the shit. <laughs> But yeah, no, he really is not bad. And I will say, like, her reasoning that she starts to provide here for killing, it's absolutely insane. But it is kind of fun. Like, their banter between each other is is kind of enjoyable. But the therapist sequence, as it stands in general, is a very tough to watch. The way it's edited, they do this weird thing where it kind of like, it's a, it's a scene that's like kind of naturally progressing. They're having dialogue, but it keeps like dissolving shot into shot as though it's like a time lapse, but it really isn't a time lapse. Like they are just having a natural conversation. So it really throws you off and like, you're not really sure what's going on. And it's just a really like poorly edited sequence. I have the, yeah, I have the exact same note, those dissolves and then it'll, it'll dissolve into a close up on her face. Yeah, and it's very much like it's the time is supposed to be lapsing, but it's not. The conversation is naturally flowing. Well, yeah. And again, she's so aggressive. She's so like firm in her stance about herself, but she's not coming off like impassioned or uh, even in a matter of like self-preservation kind of like you had with Christian Bale's performance in the original American Psycho. She just comes off as a narcissist and it just doesn't do her any favor. You don't want to root for her. As she's having this whole discussion with this doctor about all of her reasoning of why she does what she does and why she operates the way she does, it's not like you're getting insight on the character. You're not learning anything more about her. You're just seeing more and more that she's a complete fucking narcissist. Well, I mean, there's a couple of red flags because right when she sits down with him and starts talking, you know, he's asking her, you know, she asks him what the purpose of or what psychiatry is. So he explains it to her and she's like, so I could lie to you and you would never know the real me. And I mean, right away, you don't say that to your psychiatrist. He's like, well, yeah, you could. But why would you? Why are you here then? She's like, well, I don't reveal my Achilles heel to anyone. Uh, And then at the end of the conversation, he he's like, what will happen if you don't get the position? 
And she blatantly says, that's not going to happen. I will get it. I deserve it. Failure isn't an option. And, you know, he is like sitting here looking at this girl has, I mean, as a psychiatrist, he has checkboxed all the red flags for sociopathic behavior. Once she leaves, he is so like just disturbed by this encounter with her. He calls Professor Starkman to tell him, hey, you have a textbook psychopath in one of your classes. I'm not going to tell you who, if you, you know, if you figured out and you say her name, whatever, but she is a sociopath and she is hell bent obsessed with becoming your TA and please, please, please keep an eye on her because she scared me or as he's talking to the professor, she walks right back in. I did like this moment. I did. Now, can I ask you a question? And do you think, because I was trying to figure it out and there are a couple little clues that maybe I think she, do you think she knew who he was talking to? Oh, I think she definitely uh, at least was aware that he was confiding in somebody. I know that she knows that, that he was telling somebody about her because she quickly puts him in a place where she starts to intimidate him. The way she speaks to him, she kind of like backs him into his desk almost. Uh, and she, girl got crazy eyes for days. Like, Mila Kunitz, at least like, her voice is really annoying in this movie, but at least her presence is intimidating at times. She's got those big saucer plate eyes and she's so beautiful and she does not age. Let's also acknowledge that. Mila Kunitz does not age. So good on her for that. She's constantly just in a state of beauty at all times, well-preserved. But um, It's those Ukrainian those, jeans. Those beautiful Ukrainian jeans. Uh, but yeah, she... Um, I think she does make it clear that she overheard the conversation and it's a very off-putting moment and it's... Considering everything else going on, it's pretty well handled. Uh, that ain't saying much, but compared to the rest of shit that we've seen. It does show, I mean, I guess it does give us a glimpse of how just observant she is because he, when she walks in and he sees her, he pretends he's talking to her, to his mother. And he's like, I got to go, mom. I have an appointment downtown. I love you. Bye, bye, bye. And when he, when, when she is confronting him, I mean, she's being, yeah, she gets right in his face and asks him about his mother, how old she is, whether he has wife and kids. And, you know, he is just staring at this girl and you can tell, I mean, she is intimidating and it's definitely a power struggle between the two of them. And she, I think is getting the best of him Absolutely. because he, he looks terrified and he's like, um, you got to go. I have another patient coming in here. And I mean, she throws it back in his face and she's like, well, which is it? Is it another patient or do you have an appointment downtown? You know, it's not nice to lie to your dear old mother. Yeah. And he is just like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and she walks out. And then she, there's a scene where she's doing a voiceover. She's jogging and she's like, he just pissed me off so bad. I had to go out and release some energy. So she's jogging. There's a scene where she goes down by a river and throws a bottle at a refrigerator that's in the river for some reason. I, is, is this scene supposed to be, is this supposed to signify something? I don't know. This movie really suffers from bad transitional sequences. Uh, this whole jogging scene is completely unnecessary and unwarranted, and it doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. And it's set against a, a bad Oasis ripoff track that just seems very out of place. Um, it, it, it's confusing. I really don't understand what the purpose was of having this jogging sequence. Exactly. I guess I'm, I'm there. I was trying to figure out if I just missed what was supposed to be significant about her going and throwing a bottle at this refrigerator that was in the middle of this river. Yeah. 
it might have went over my head. Hey, maybe this movie is way more complex than I think. And it just, I missed it. But I'm like, this, what is the point of this? Yeah. And it doesn't at all lead into the next moment, which is this. They've been talking about this Dean's party that's been coming up, um, which is like the next the next scene. You, you're you introduced in the middle of this party. So it's not like this jogging sequence has anything to do with her like getting ready for the party or talking about the party. or It literally is just like her going to let off some steam, but it doesn't lead anywhere her character doesn't seem like she's that shaken like she's always so steadfast in what she wants that she never really like shifts her energy or her tone so it just doesn't seem like it serves a purpose real quick let's talk about this party though because this event is very confusing to me because I don't understand what fucking purpose it's serving. I don't know why the Dean is throwing a party to begin with and why all of the students are invited. But if you look at the the cast here, like the array of students attending, you get all sorts of people and nobody is costumed accordingly. Some people look like they're wearing sweatpants and like joggers. <laughs> Other people are wearing suits and gowns. And like, I don't get if there's a theme going on. Maybe some people just didn't get the proper invite. I feel like they just grabbed random extras off the street. Another thing to acknowledge here, this movie has some of the ugliest extras I've ever seen in my life. Some of these people, just watch the crowds. Woof. Rough lookers. Rough looking folk. Like They really just took what they could get with this movie. And I think they let them costume themselves. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, who is this is Bar- is her name Barbie Brown? Because as that that's oh I love her. You know who that's my girl. That is that's your girl, Kim Poirier from Decoys. <laughs> which folks, if you want to hear a review of Decoys, it's on our Patreon. Um, yeah, so this and she's like dressed to the hilt. And when when uh, Rachel walks into the uh, to the party, she bumps into Barbie, and um, Barbie's like, "Watch out!" And she's like, "Oh fuck you!" She says something about Barbie. Fuck you, Barbie. I don't know. And it is mentioned, I mean, the run is mentioned because she's like, oh shit, I must have went running a lot longer than I thought because now I'm late to the party. Because when she walks in, the professor is perched up on this massive spiral staircase with all of these girls just gathered around him in awe of him talking about how Ed Gein, the serial killer, was the inspiration for Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho. A little hat tip to the horror fans that they know are going to be watching this movie and falling in love with it. Uh, half these girls look like they're dressed up as extras out of Austin Powers, and the other half look like they're going to a business conference. <laughs> um, so Cassandra comes over to Rachel and asks her how her date was with Brian. And she's like, oh, well, he went home after dinner. And Cassandra's like, well, why did you come and get a condom? If he went home after dinner and Rachel's like, quit pestering me. Leave me alone. Shut the fuck up. It's none of your business. And at that point, if I was Cassandra, I'd been like, fuck you, bitch, and walked away. But Cassandra's staying there being friendly. And she's like, well, I spent the evening with Bobby. And, you know, it. He we made love or something. She makes a comment about how it wasn't little. And I'm like, gross. I don't want to think about William Shatner fucking anybody. Why has William Shatner always been celebrated as a sex symbol? Like, ever since, like, he broke out with Star Trek, he's always been recognized as being so sexy. I don't see it. I don't get it. I like him. I love that he runs with it. Like, he makes it part of his shtick. But, I mean, at this point, he's already, like, well over, I'm assuming, 60 in this movie and they are treating him like the bee's knees all these girls are just oogling over him and ogling over him oh, all of them are i don't get it barbie comes on to him i mean i mean i love william shatner as i think he's great but let's yeah why are we pretending this man is sexy i don't know i mean 
Anyways, so Cassandra takes Rachel away from the crowd to tell her a secret. And her secret is that Bobby has told her, Cassandra, that she is going to be his next teaching assistant. Uh-oh. I And Rachel, I do like Mila Kunis's reaction to this. I do like it. She's trying to act like she's happy for Cassandra and you can see like she is really not. And there's this moment where Cassandra's like, well, maybe I'll even get into Quantico. And Rachel is like, mm-hmm, oh yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. why don't we come? Why don't we go celebrate? Why don't we get a bottle of champagne and go back to your dorm room? And there's a cut of her. What is, uh, Cassandra says something. She's like, don't, you know, don't leave me. I can't remember what she says, but it cuts to then Rachel's character answering her as she's hanging in front of her. She puts a note on her. So basically what she did is she killed Cassandra and hung her in her dorm room to make it look like a suicide because the note that she puts on Cassandra says he didn't love me enough. Sorry. The way they transition in this, I think they were trying to make it kind of like fun and artistic, but it ends up just being a huge disappointment. You see that Rachel goes in for a hug. Like she like hugs Cassandra to to congratulate her and they embrace. And when she pulls away from her, it's revealed now that she's in the dorm room and the camera pulls around to reveal that Cassandra is now hanging from the ceiling of the dorm that she's been hung and killed and that the the note is then attached to her chest to make it look like it was a suicide. I found it very lackluster. Uh, I was really hoping to see more of the pursuit and how this came to fruition, this murder, Uh, but it's just very much treated like an afterthought. Huge letdown. Uh, Very awkward transition, in my opinion. Definitely a letdown, considering the Cassandra character up until this point has been a pretty prominent character. And for her death just to be, you know, resorted to just a, a transitional shot, it was rather disappointing. I would have liked to have seen some interaction between uh, Rachel and Cassandra at the dorm room leading to her death. We don't get it. And again, can we can we acknowledge here that when uh, Rachel is putting the note on the body and she's in the room, she does not have gloves on. Again, folks, forensics. Is, isn't this supposed to be like the most... Uh, revered forensic school in the nation. Lazy, 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 lazy writing, lazy execution. In Dr. Daniel's office the next day, he tries to present this like worst case scenario to Rachel, trying to like jam it into her mind. The idea of her not getting the position uh, that she, and she, that she's desires, you know, cause She's so steadfast. And one of my least favorite traits about her is that she's so unwavering on this. Like, she absolutely refuses to see it any other way. But it's such a lame plot point that, like, you just don't really care. So when she talks about it with such passion, it just becomes really grating for me and really annoying. And at this point, like, it is just the only thing she really talks about. Either she's talking about killing somebody or she's bantering about this fucking TA position. And at this point, it is a majority of the dialogue. So it's becoming really exhausting. And he's being kind of reasonable, like trying to present the idea to her of it not happening. And she's maniacal about it. She's like, it's simply, that's not 
possible. And it starts to morph into like a veiled threat <laughs> against him and his mother. Well, no, yeah, well, it does. Yeah, the next, because the next day she goes to Dr. Daniel's office to tell him that she is not coming back to see him. And she blames the, she's like, I think you're to blame for us just not connecting. He's like, well, what do you mean? And then she just starts to like berate him and, and tell him that, you know, you're a loser basically is the whole gist of her conversation. She's like, it must suck to see so many successful students come and go each year. And you're just stuck here in this dead end job. And the only person you have to hang with is your elderly mother. I'm like, he's a psychiatrist. He has to be making some bank, right? So it can't be, I mean, she's, she's acting like he's working at like Taco Bell or something like, you're, you're, you're a loser in a dead end job. He's a fucking doctor. I'm assuming he's doing pretty damn well for himself. Right. And then she compares him to Ed Gein because all he has is his, his elderly controlling mother. The things she says here are, are low fucking blows. They're low blows. They're threats. Uh, she's attacking his love life. She's attacking his dead end job, which like, let's be real. He works for what is apparently one of the top schools in the nation, though it sure doesn't fucking look like it. Um, But still, like, that's what we're being told, so I'm going to go with that. And he's tending to his ailing mother, which she really tries to use as, like, a a crutch. You know, something like a negative trait. And for me, I'm like, hey, man, good on you for taking care of your lovely mother, who is very ill. Like, that's what you should do. So none of these really come off as negative traits, but she's really trying to use them against him and again for me as the viewer it just makes her more unlikable like if she's supposed to be an anti-hero if she as the titular character the american psycho as we could take away from her american themed uh, wardrobe uh, <laughs> but her being the american psycho if, if she's supposed to be the anti-hero uh, they're doing a really bad job of writing her as such because she just never does anything likable at all. And in this case, she's she's just being cruel to this guy who really is not a negative character in any way, shape, or form. No, he was literally, he's trying to help her, you know? I mean, that's, why do you go to a psychiatrist if you don't want to have your, you know, opinions or your, you know, your desires challenged? That's the whole point of it, right? That's the whole point of going to a psychiatrist for growth and to, to, to have have someone to discuss these things. And then they give feedback and, and, and other uh, scenarios that could play out. She doesn't want to hear any of it. And yeah, she is a fucking bitch. She tells, he's like, I don't like you jumped into conclusions. And she's like, oh, I'm not jumping to conclusions. If you opened your eyes, you'd see I was already there. And then she turns around and walks away. I'm like, you fucking bitch. Because I like this doctor. Not only is he does he have some daddy status going on, he is a nice, genuinely a, like a nice guy, you know? And I love the fact that he you know, is so close to his mother. There's a scene later on when he calls his mom and leaves her a, a message about their date night. And when he he hangs up, I'm, I'm generally not a fan of like the camera linger, lingering too long, but when he hangs up after leaving his message, he's just all smiles. He's all excited about being able to spend time with his mother. And I'm like, this dude is so charming. Um, and she is just a fucking little bitch to him. The next day in class, nobody's mentioned Brian missing. Nobody's mentioned Gertrude missing. Nobody's mentioned Cassandra missing. But the the professor is talking about Ted Bundy. And he poses a question to the class that asks, what kind of serial killer was Ted Bundy? And of course, Keith, because we forgot about Keith, but now he pops back up. He says, oh, Ted Bundy was a very organized and calculated serial killer, which causes Rachel to chuckle. And Professor Starkman is like, oh, do you disagree? And she does. And she challenges uh, 
Keith's reading of Ted Bundy. She's like, he started out very calculating and organized, but he spiraled into sloppiness due to his sheer need to kill. And the professor's like, oh yes, that's very good. And Keith like looks at her and there's, you know, obviously this tension between them. And now she is even more convinced now that Keith may be in the running for the TA position. So she decides she needs to kill him. Another unnecessary transitional sequence, by the way, of Keith walking across campus for about seven minutes. And he goes into the library. He's sitting in the library studying, or she thinks he's studying. She comes up behind him with the ice pick. And as she's getting around to stab him, she sees that he's actually drawing like very serial killer-esque images. Uh, And she's like, oh, well, maybe he and I have a lot more in common than what I thought. But she's like, well, it's too bad, though, because I he still needs to die because he's a threat. So she stabs him in the head with an ice pick, although we don't see any of it. We just see her raise the ice I pick. I find it genuinely upsetting how much wasted potential there is in this sequence for multiple reasons. First of all, Keith, obviously written to be her greatest um, threat for this position, simply based off of his overall knowledge of the material, uh, certainly is not explored. It's vaguely mentioned, not explored. This guy has maybe two, three scenes max, barely says anything, barely does anything up until he's dispatched. What's really upsetting to me is the fact that they're going to throw out a plot point along the lines of this guy is maybe on the same wavelength as her. He thinks similar to her. There's so much room to explore something there, develop that character further, let him have some you know, evolution as a, as a human being. <laughs> uh, and they just toss it aside for not even for a kill because you don't see it. It's done off camera. They just off him. And I was j- legitimately angry at this scene when they gave us that little tidbit uh, and they chose to not explore it at all whatsoever. They just had her bring down the ice pick and it cut away. And I was like, fuck you, American Psycho 2. How fucking dare you? <laughs> oh, I said that n- n- numerous times throughout this film. Fuck you, American Psycho 2. Um, yeah, so now Keith is dead. And again, the logistics of killing this kid in, in the library during broad daylight, how did she get his body out of the library without oh, nobody seeing Oh, they didn't, seeing? because later on you do see a forensic photo, remember? Oh, but okay. So, okay. So how come it's never mentioned through the rest of the movie that they found a dead, murdered kid in the library? You're asking too many reasonable questions, <laughs> Troy. Reasonable, reasonable questions. Okay, we'll go with it. Okay, so they find whatever. Okay, so uh, cut to Professor Starkman making his way to Cassandra's dorm room, and he's trying to get in. Uh, it's locked. He's knocking. Uh, when he is interrupted by Barbie Brown, she makes an appearance again, looking looking damn good. And she's coming on to him. She's like, oh, I think my chances this year are much better than last year. And she's like touching him. He's like, well, yeah, it's a very tight race. And she's like, oh, yeah, tight. Mm." I mean, I'm like, what the fuck? And she figures out because he is trying to get into Cassandra's dorm room that it must be Cassandra that got the position. And she's like, well, good for her. Um, Have a great day. Bye. And then she leaves and she's never seen again. I got to say, Kim Poyer. Gives probably the best performance in this movie. (laughs) She's on screen for mere seconds. 
she is an underrated actress. She's so good at playing sexy bombshells with her breathy Marilyn Monroe-esque uh, execution of dialogue at times and her heavy-lidded, dreamy eyes. I wish we saw more of her. She only ever plays sexy characters, but she does it well. Uh, and her performance here really made me think I was going to see a lot more of Barbara. Barbie, as we call her. Uh, nope, never comes back again. Definitely the standout performer in what is a, an unfortunate title, American Psycho 2. Uh, sad that she has that to her name, but she's pretty damn good in this scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but she, yeah, she leaves and she disappears and she's never seen again. He gets into her room. He apparently has a key to her dorm room even. So he unlocks the dorm room, goes in, finds her dead body hanging. Um, immediately starts to remove any sign that they were in a relationship. He he pulls the note off of her. He grabs, snatches up some pictures that she had on his desk of her and him in one of those photo booths. And then as he's leaving, the phone rings, which reminds him that he has left her a message the night before. So he takes the answering machine tape out of the answering machine. And the only thing I could think of is this, this movie was early 2000s. Did people even still have answering machines then? <laughs> I will say I do enjoy, considering that you know he is a professor uh, in the field and knows how to handle forensics properly, he is the only character that you see do anything that seems like he's genuinely attempting to cover up shit uh, correctly. Like he he grabs um, a rag, and so everything he's handling, he's making sure his hands are not touching. Um, uh, he pulls the tape, he pulls the note, he wipes down everything. So you at least get to see him like properly execute certain things. It's not something I can say for the titular character, the American psycho Mila Kunitz, uh, who's getting her bare hands all over all kinds of shit. But with that being said, at least he responds properly in this scene. And William Shatner, I don't care how bad the movie is. He always brings his a game. I love his reaction here. Like he's so big uh, and appropriately over the top. I really like him in this scene. Uh, I think he's really fun to watch. He calls Dr. Daniels and tells Dr. Daniels she's dead. Dr. Daniels is like, who? And he's like, the girl that you called me about, she's dead. And so now we get this plot point where the doctor thinks he's talking about Rachel because neither one of them have said Rachel's name to each other. That when the, when the, Doctor called Professor Starkman earlier in the film. He assumed that the doctor was talking about Cassandra. Okay. So there's now this confusion. Professor's trying to tell him that Cassandra's the one that's dead, but the doctor's thinking it's Rachel. And the professor's like, I did not agree with your assumption that she was a sociopath. And the doctor's like, well, I'm sorry you don't agree, but that's what I got from her. And he's like, why are you so upset about it? And the professor tells the doctor that he was sleeping with her and that he loved her and then he's like can you write me a prescription for some valium and that's that's that so there's a confusion that's been you know exposed where they they think that they're thinking of two different people mila kunis or rachel did herself no favors by offing his love interest because what happens the next day it's the big build-up the day that we've been waiting for the friday before spring break when the professor is supposed to announce who he's chosen for his new TA. However, because his love interest was murdered or killed herself, which he thinks, what's her name? Lizzie McGuire comes in the next day 
and is like, oh, well, some bad news. The professor's taking his sabbatical early and there will be no TA position the next year. I'm like, see, Rachel, you just fucked yourself. This is the only dialogue that Elizabeth has, by the way, the only dialogue, but she's positioned to be a rather prominent influence over the course of the film. Even more so, we will come to learn as the movie progresses. Um, uh, I will say for like this being a rather large plot twist, it's handled in a very lackluster way. Like all of a sudden he states that he's taking sabbatical and that position is no longer relevant. And Rachel seems for the most part rather unfazed by it. She's still convinced she's going to get that position. And I'm like, girl, that position doesn't exist anymore. So I don't know how you're so confident, but uh, okay, go on. And this is, and okay, so we've gotten to this point where everything that we this film has been about so far is her getting this TA position. She's already off three of her classmates to get it. She, you know, everything has been about this TA position, this TA position. And you're right. It's very lackluster. They come in. Oh, and it's not even him that announces it. It's Ms. Lizzie McGuire that comes in. Um, at this point, this has been the whole plot of the movie and this happens. And it's so just almost like a non-event and there are still like 40 fucking minutes left of this film at this point i'm like what the fuck it just sure doesn't feel like it though because like the what unfolds moving forward is um paced very very strangely like as you're building up towards what is like the final uh climax of the film uh it's like starts building and building and all of a sudden it just ends as you'll come to learn like the movie ends abruptly it's strange but you start building up to what is supposed to be like a rather pivotal confrontation donning cassandra's extremely early 2000s dress and hair combo let me say uh because mila kunis now has her hair in like pin curls it looks very not flattering in my personal opinion on her beautiful face um she struts right up to the professor's office bangles and all silver bangles on her wrists and she Bust in there and she proceeds to demand the position and i'm like girl subtlety will get you so far in this current position you're really putting yourself in a bad place you're making it very obvious that you are the one that's killed all of these people yeah he's passed out on his couch drunk and you know from the valium he's been taking shots of you know patron and his valium pills so he wakes up and he's like startled to see her and yeah she's like oh i heard what's what happened you know i i need that position and he's like well what makes you think you're going to get it anyways and she gets kind of bitchy with him too and he tells her to go home and this is when she starts rubbing his shoulders and admits to him that she's always loved him okay troy let's take a moment here if that's the case we sure as fuck didn't know it. We, the audience, uh, if this is a like supposed to be a plot twist or a development, I don't understand where it's coming from. Is she trying to manipulate him? Is she doing this because she knows that Cassandra used this as a tool to get him to offer the position? Like, I wonder if that's the case. Is she trying to basically become Cassandra in his eyes? I thought the same thing, but then there is this. She she does give him like. There is a whole backstory that she's known who he was for all the, all this time. So let's talk about that <laughs> for a minute. Let's also talk about what is supposed to be apparently the big revelation here in American Psycho 2. The big plot twist. Shocker. Get ready. Sit down, listeners, because you're really going to have to like 
take notes. This is as convoluted as it comes. <laughs> so it turns out, in the midst of this big clunky dialogue, in which Rachel basically, A, confesses her love to the professor, and then as he resists her coming on to him, she starts to disclose to him how she's known him for far longer than he's aware uh, this whole scene really never finds its footing, and because it's just so implausible, the twist that's disclosed involving his old assistant, Clara, and her association to the professor makes no sense. But try to follow along with this. So Clara, his old assistant, was also apparently Rachel's babysitter, and apparently Clara who was also kind of tracking and infatuated with uh, Bateman, brought Rachel along on this date specifically because she was trying to track him and get more information about him, but ended up falling victim to him. Is that correct, Troy? Yes. So she brought this child to to what she knew to be a serial killer's apartment. Yeah. And then managed to get herself killed. But along the way, Clara has been sharing pictures and and basically, I guess, has told this little 10-year-old girl that she's fucking her professor because Rachel knows it. And she's like, I saw a picture of you. And the first time I saw it, I knew I loved you. And he's like, what the fuck? Okay, so question. (laughs) Are Are we to assume then that Rachel grew up in this college town then? Because... If Clara was her babysitter when she was at the same time uh, the professor's TA and he was having an affair with her, wouldn't that mean that little Rachel had to have grown up in this town? You're asking too many questions and you're making too much sense, Troy. <laughs> wouldn't people know her and like be like, oh, that's she lives in this town? I mean, college towns aren't that big. But it's clear that that's not possible because her parents come to visit her from like out of town. Yeah, I, I, I fuck this movie. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's how she knows the professor. And if she, like you, like you said, if she truly was in love with him, we the fucking audience surely had no idea. And wouldn't she have used that as her tool uh, earlier on when she first got, the, if she knows that this college professor has affairs with his students and that the students that he has affairs with are the, generally the ones that get the position and she truly loves him, wouldn't she have just started to come on to him the minute she got into his class? And because I'm sorry, I love Lindy Booth, but I mean, Mila Kunis is fucking hot. I mean, um, I, I'm assuming he probably would have given in to her, uh, but he is like so disturbed by what she's telling him. She's like, you were in Patrick Bateman's apartment. And she's like, yeah. And I don't know what you're so mad about Clara being killed for. You realize she was cheating on you, right? She was a slut. He's like, you shut your mouth. And then there is, okay, how did he die? Well, before we touch on the death, before we touch on the death, because that is very much his own thing, I do also have to acknowledge that as she's giving this whole monologue explaining her relationship with the professor, we also get about 40 different flashbacks of what appears to be his life story. We see all kinds of shit with Clara. We see all kinds of things of Clara with Bateman. We start to see things about his family. We see a flashback of his baby crying. Like we're what, what an ugly baby. The ugliest <laughs> baby. Oh my God. Well, we're seeing, so we're seeing all kinds of unnecessary flashbacks just bombarding us, blasting our senses alongside this really unfortunate narration. And then... 
to top it off, he's in such shock that he just backs up against the window <laughs> and, and he's like, I can't handle it anymore. And she then proceeds to a la the three pigs <laughs> blow him out the window. She blows, she huffs and she puffs so hard that she blows fucking William Shatner out the window with a single gust. Like, it, I I can't explain it in a way that makes it sound plausible or reasonable or realistic, but she's like seductively like whoosh, puffs at him and he just flops out the window to his death. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, is this supposed to be symbolic? Is that actually what happened? <laughs> I was confused. She blows him a kiss. Yeah. And it blows him right out the goddamn window. Uh, and again, do not do, do does not no other students go to this college apparently college campuses are happening places you trying to tell me nobody saw this gentleman fall out of a dorm window right on well, college the, campus the janitor did and then she killed him as well <laughs> oh yeah Remember, po- she, <laughs> she stabs him with them she tells him he has a nice mop and then we get a, a a scene of him in the dumpster with the mop shoved through his mouth out of his head she she has some of the worst one-liners too like <sighs> earlier in the movie like somebody like throws her a frisbee and i i can't even remember i think it's brian like right when you get introduced to him he like flings her a frisbee and she grabs it and then she's like loser and he's like come on you could do better than that and she's like that's what your mama said i'm like what (laughs) what did you just say when she starts yeah and 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 the the (laughs) one-liners get real heavy now uh she's full of them and they're so fucking cringy I'm like Mila. Did you not? Did you not read the script, dear? I do. I will say Mila Kunis hates this film. She is very vocal about she regrets doing this. I wonder why. <laughs> I don't. Um, and she is pissed that it got connected to American Psycho as well. She's very much made that clear. At least her tastes have evolved, and she's gone on to do other great things like Black Swan, so we can get the American Psycho two taste out of our mouths. So yeah, the he's fucking dead, and she's able to go downstairs, get his body, drag it into her car, put it in the front seat where it remains for quite a while, and nobody notices this car driving around with this dead William Shatner in the front seat. As she speeds away, the the security guard tries to st- st- stops her, like he's like, "Get back here!" I would think she just would continue to drive away, but she backs up, and he notices poor dead William Shatner in the passenger seat, and she proceeds to kill him off screen. We don't see it. We don't know what happens. We just hear him go. <gasps> Talk about unnecessary. Like what? What the fuck did this this scene serve purpose? Like it 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 makes no sense. Like you don't see the kill. You don't see anything really come from it. You do see a shot of him later with like a knife through his hand, but like this could have been skimmed from the movie and it would have absolutely had no impact whatsoever. Oh, there's a lot of scenes that could have been skimmed through this movie and wouldn't have. uh, There's a lot. This movie needed an editor badly, a good editor. Um, I'm going to bless their hearts for piecing together what they did, but goddamn, there are a lot of unnecessary scenes. Uh, Oh, God. Uh, so the next day, the doctor, Dr. Daniels, is trying to call the professor, but he keeps getting the voicemail. This is when we hear his secretary answer a phone call and make an appointment. And he comes in, or his secretary comes in to tell him, because he he calls out to her. He's like, hey, if that's Professor Starkman, I'll, I'll take it. You know, I need to talk to him. And she comes waltzing in, and she's like, no, it wasn't Professor Starkman. It was that very uh, aggressive uh, Rachel girl, and I booked her at three. And he, his eyes go wide. He's obviously really puzzled because he thinks that Rachel is the one that killed herself. 
Cut to, I want to talk about unnecessary scenes, Roger. This whole fucking sub subplot with her parents goes nowhere and could have been completely eliminated from the film. I mean, there is no, you think it's going to go somewhere and it just, her parents come and they just, I mean, I guess it's to show us that her mom's neurotic and maybe that's where she got, but it's, her mom doesn't seem, she just kind of seems like a typical, a little bit assertive mother to me. She doesn't seem like crazy or anything. I don't know what the purpose was. The dad doesn't say a fucking word. All he talks about is wanting to eat, but her parents show up to her dorm room and they immediately mention the smell of the room. And she's like, well, no, I called maintenance. They just haven't shown up. There's this drawn out dialogue about where they're going to eat, to eat at. Uh, and Rachel, Rachel tells her mother the name of the restaurant. And the mother's like, oh, is that Italian? Because you know your dad can't eat Italian food. He can't uh, digest it. And she's like, no, it's French. I mean, this goes on for fucking 10 minutes. They're talking about what restaurant they're going to. Well, And another thing that this scene really fucked up, in my opinion, is like, at this point, you think there should be some like, developing suspense or like in the original American psycho. And I hate going back to it because there's not even comparison. Like why bother? But like in the original American psycho, one of the most intriguing developments was over the course of the film, Bateman was starting to kind of unravel and you didn't know what was really happening and what was his psychosis? Like what was his mental instability? What was he like actually experiencing versus what was in his head here? None of that exists. Um, like all of this is taken very literally. Um, and so for her character, she has absolutely like no development of like paranoia or worry that things might be going out of control. She's always so steadfast that like, A, everything she wants is attainable. This position is attainable. And B, there's nothing to worry about. And like, I guess for being part of her psychosis, that's intriguing because she is such a narcissist. Like in her mind, things are always going to go her way. But considering like the complexity and severity of what's going on around her, for her not to ever have any sense of like worry or fear that, that things are starting to unravel makes for a rather lackluster execution overall. Because if her character is not worried about something coming back to bite her in the ass, something going wrong, then we as the audience never feel like any feelings of like concern or worry for her as the titular character. You know, we never worry that things are going to ever be a problem for her because she's so self-assured. She never has doubts in anything. Even when she's arguing with her parents, like when her parents show up for, you know, no matter who the character may be, you might think that there's an element of concern that they're going to discover what's wrong, that they're going to discover the body, that they're going to figure things out. Not at all. She's just annoyed. She's annoyed that they're there. She like rolls her eyes and she shoes them out of the room. She never ever seems like she's losing control Whereas everything going on around her absolutely should reflect that. Like, there are multiple dead bodies. One is in her room. The room stinks of it. Uh, and it just doesn't make sense. Like, her reasoning, I get it. She's a psycho. It's in the title of the movie. But still, her reasoning just does not do the overall impact of the movie any favors. Yeah, like you said, it just it creates a lack of of tension. You know, we we never feel like she may get caught because she 
doesn't think she's going to get caught. There's no scenarios that she puts herself in where she could get caught. I mean, there's the moment where her mother goes to open the closet door and she's like, no mother, get out of the closet. Your gift is in there. And when we find out what the gift is, like there's no way if that was in the closet, her mother probably wouldn't have seen it anyway. It's uh, okay. The doctor waits for Rachel, but she doesn't show up. This is when he makes the phone call to his mother to remind her of the date. And he leaves his mother a message. So at this same rest, is there, there must just be one fucking restaurant in town because it's the only restaurant these people go to. And it looks like from the outside, they try to give us, you know, uh, transition shots of the exterior of this restaurant. And it looks like a fucking house. There's no parking lot to it. It's just a fucking house. But apparently it's this elaborate French restaurant. And there's only one waiter as well. It's the same poor guy. There's only one. It's the same fucking. Who has no idea what he's doing. Like, you think by now he'd at least start getting a grasp of the situation, but he's still bumbling and fumbling his way through serving these people. <laughs> like, how did this fucker get hired to this fancy French restaurant? Oh, I don't know. But at the restaurant, Rachel's mother is rambling about her friend that didn't listen to her to, to go get checked out or get some tumor checked out and it ends up it was it was cancer and she was just annoying the shit out of rachel rachel's just rolling her eyes the entire time and she gives her that gift she gives her the gift and what the gift is is it's that cheap ass heart pendant necklace that the professor gave to how is this necklace so pivotal in this movie it's It's the cheapest necklace it's not even wrapped it's not even wrapped it's It's not not even even real silver it's they say it's stainless steel her dad's like, that's stainless steel. And her mother's like, no, it's not. It's silver. Oh, but the like, mother no. is smitten with it. She's like, this is the most beautiful gift I've ever received. I'm like, really? But that was the gift that was supposedly in the closet. It's a small gift. You could hide that real easy. I know. That's what I'm saying. Now, her, she wouldn't have saw it if she opened the closet. Uh, uh, Rachel gets up and goes to the bathroom. And in the bathroom, she is another voiceover about how she would love to kill her mother. Like, have you, I I just, does anybody else think about cutting their mother's throat open and ripping out her vocal cords and, or cutting her tongue off and feeding it to her? Um, In the meantime, the mother at at the, out in the restaurant is missing her steak knife because we see that Rachel took it with her and she flags down this poor waiter who's clueless. And she's trying to tell him she needs a steak knife, but she's trying to say it in French. Uh, And he's like, I don't know, but he just pulls a steak knife off out of his pocket. Do waiters, carry steak knives in their pocket roger that would seem kind of dangerous it does me. seem dangerous i wonder if at a fine establishment such as such as this place but uh, i wouldn't want to take a fucking steak knife that's I been know. in someone's pocket in the first place <laughs> i know and oh, there is there is this whole kind of like focus on the knife which you think it's like going to come into play more which it like really doesn't this movie has a lot of like issues with like pacing in the sense like it'll place too much focus on something and you think it's going to become like a pivotal element and then it just doesn't come into play like the mother literally mentions the steak knife missing about seven times doesn't come into play it doesn't come into play and 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 rachel's in the in the bathroom talking about how she wants to kill her mother so we think maybe that's what's going to happen is she really going to kill her parents but their parents the parents disappear after the scene and they're never seen again at the same moment that she's in the bathroom talking about killing her mother. Dr. Daniel shows up with his lovely elderly mother. I want to know where they got this woman from because she seems completely confused about <laughs> what she's supposed to be doing. I mean, she's a lovely old woman. She has a cute outfit on and that, that hat, that lovely flower hat that looks like something Blossom would wear in the TV show. But th- this woman, I wonder if they just found this elderly woman wandering around the, st- the street during filming like, hey, do you want to come in and play this guy's mother? 
because she seems to. She's have, the standout aspect of the film, in my opinion. She's a delight. She is a delight, but I'm like, this woman has no clue what she's. She has no idea what's going on. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this character is supposed to be spiraling into dementia, but if so, she nailed it. Uh, she all she talks about is all the medication she has to take. <laughs> they sure make it seem like this woman is on death's door, but she seems <laughs> to be doing okay, all things considered. I mean, she's at this beautiful French restaurant with her very handsome son, who cares the world about her oh so my she's God. got that in her corner this is a scene though i'm sorry i'd love this old woman but this whole thing could have been edited out like there is a literally a conversation they have where they call the waiter over and ask him if they could go sit at a table next to a window and he proceeds to tell them that that section is closed for spring break what the fuck does that mean why would you close a section for spring break is that what's the insinuation that maybe they're sure on help because students left for spring break. It makes no fucking sense. And this old woman is just confused as fuck. Like, <laughs> well, and also I think one of the big problems is, is like this, this movie is bloated, 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 bloated. But one of the biggest issues is once you get to the final like arc of the film, you know, the last, uh, the great, the grand climax, I guess, there sure as hell ain't enough material to tell a plausible story. So I really think that they scraped up every goddamn scrap of meat that they had to put on the bone of this storyline uh, to make it seem like the finale is bigger and grander than it actually is. Because if they would have cut anything, this thing would have just seemed like a husk of a story, uh, which it already pretty much does. Like when you find out what actually happens here and that that's the end of the movie, I'm sorry. You, even going into this with no expectations, I was still sorely disappointed. Sorely disappointed with the finale of this. Well, film. we're we're getting there. We're chugging through. I mean, there's a lot of bloat to talk about. They don't get to move next to the window, apparently, and so they order their drinks from the waiter. And Rachel comes out of the bathroom, and the doctor notices her, and he's like, "Holy shit!" Okay, so he knows that she's not dead, right? And she comes over to the table and proceeds to engage in conversations with him and his dear mother where he where she tells the mother that oh my god that's the cutest hat i've ever seen i need a hat just like that and the the, the mother this elderly mother is just so charmed by rachel and so flattered that someone told her her hat is cute she's charmed but she also seems very like confused as to who she could be and after she walks away and keep in mind this girl is supposed to be a college student and Mila Kunis at this time looks about 17, but when does she not look 17? Let's be real. Um, she walks away and the mother turns to her very adult son and says, who is that? A new girlfriend? I hope to think. And I'm like, really? Like, this man does seem double that woman's age, but clearly in this universe, that doesn't matter. William Shatner, who's banging blondes left and right. Uh, as though he's got a 10 inch dick and everyone knows it. Oh yeah. Well, he excuses himself and marches right over to her table where she's sitting down with her parents and her, this poor dad, all he wants to do is eat his only line in this film, the, the, the character of Rachel's dad, the only line he has is I'm hungry. I want to eat. That's all he says. Um, so Dr. Daniels goes over and introduces himself to her parents. He's like, I'm a friend of your daughter's and miss Newman he calls her. Can I speak to you for a moment? So she's like, sure. So she gets up and they go privately to speak. And there's this little moment where the mother bends over to the dad and he's like, why did she call him? the? Why did, why did he call her the wrong name? 
I wish that they would have had a few more fucking moments like this because these are the little tidbits that make it seem more intriguing and interesting. And there certainly is not enough of that until it's kind of fucking thrown at you uh, in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. Um, it's not even hinted at this being an, an idea or a possibility until this moment here specifically. This is the first time that that's really hinted at. Yes, precisely. Um, so he confronts her about what's going on. He's like, you, uh, you're having an affair with your teacher. And then I hear that you hung yourself. And she's like, what? She's like, I didn't hang myself. And he's like, well, who did? And he, and all she says is it was her. And it doesn't matter anyways. Uh, I'm done with this conversation. You enjoy your mother. I'm going back to my, my table. Cause it's my mom's birthday. And she goes, and that's the end of the conversation. When she does get back to her table, she, her mother asks her, why did he, why did he call you Mrs. Newman? And she's like, I don't know. Just eat and shut up. I need to go home and pack. <laughs> so obviously, the, the Dr. Daniels is very perplexed. So he goes to the professor's office to see what's going on. He hasn't been able to get a hold of him. He goes there and he sees that it's in disarray. There's books on the floor. The open bottle of, of booze is still on his desk. So he goes to the sheriff's office to tell him, you know, I think I need to file a missing persons report on Professor Starkman because he's missing. And the, the sheriff is like, oh, that's ironic. His wife called 20 minutes ago to do the same thing. And the sheriff makes this comment about this is we've had quite a run on missing persons reports this year. It's a record for us. And the doctor's like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, here we have. Gertrude Fleck, who we got a, a missing person report on her, and which does not make sense whatsoever when we see something that happens in the final moments of this film, right? Because I'm going to jump ahead. In the final moments of the film, there's a scene of like them finding Gertrude Fleck's body on her kitchen floor. So obviously her body was in her house the whole time. So why would, wouldn't somebody that filed a missing persons report on her have gone to her house to look for her first? Also, if you look at the photo, there's like a, a, like a Chinese woman like kneeling over her. It's not like it's like a cop photo. It's like a random woman. It's random person. Like a random woman in black and white like kneeling over her. It's like, what the fuck is going on? There's a lot of real loose ends throughout this whole finale too. Let me just say it. There's this whole moment like prior to Eric leaving the restaurant, there's this little moment where Rachel is having dialogue with him and she accidentally fumbles and confirms to the professor um, or confirms that the professor found her hanging, implying that it was another girl and that she's aware of it. So hinting to Eric that somebody else was found dead. So she's really sloppy with her details and she really hints that there's something else going on, that she's involved with it. And then there's that whole moment where Eric goes back to Bobby's office and that's where there's the brief reveal with the security guard dead with the knife through his hand. Like that's all you see. You get a flash of it as he drives by it. Um, but when he goes into Bobby's office, Eric finds the room a mess and he proceeds to like go through the room and he's like getting his hands all over shit. He's touching things. And it's like, motherfucker, this is a crime scene. Like you are incriminating yourself. You are being so foolish. Uh, so like nobody here has any idea like how to handle a crime scene, even though like this school is said to be like the top in the nation for such things. So it's just baffling to me that nobody knows what to do. But when you finally get to the police station, you have these two cops, like the sheriff and like the one other officer who kind of like come into play for a moment and they're presented to be like somewhat of characters 
these people have not been in this movie at all up until now. And now they become kind of like major players and it feels really awkward. Like, I don't know where these fuckers came from. They never opted to introduce them prior to this, but now like they're in it. They're in it to win it. It's the two of them and Eric and they're going to figure out what's going on. I mean, they are, they, they take over as being kind of the, the uh, protagonists of the film for the final 10 minutes. The, the sheriff also says that one of the um, missing persons reports that were filed this year was from seven months ago and it was from a Rachel Newman. Dun, dun, dun. And the doctor's like, well, what do you mean, Rachel Newman? She's she's here. And they're like, yeah, we know. We went to her dorm room and we found her and she was perfectly fine. So we don't know why the, the missing person report was filed in the first place. And there's flashbacks of the officer going to the dorm room, Mila Kunis answering and him questioning her about being Rachel Newman. And she's like, well, obviously I am. I'm not missing. So and the doctor's like, so what? Her parents just dropped the missing persons report? And he's like, no, she's an orphan. Her parents didn't file any report. It was a couple of friends of hers. But obviously, she's alive and well. And the doctor's like, well, how do you know it's even the same girl? And the, the sheriff's like, oh, I don't know. We just assumed. And he's like, well, will you go back to me with this or go to the school with me to, to, to figure things out? Because things are getting a, a really, really fishy around here. Wait, let's talk about this real fast. Let's talk about this as a plot twist. So girl is reported missing, obviously reported by somebody. They go check it out. They find Mila Kunis. Surprise, a pleasant surprise. She claims to be Rachel. They close the case. Don't you think that they would at least communicate with the person who filed the report and say, oh, we just spoke to her. She is at the dorm. Feel free to speak with her yourself. Let's find closure with the situation. But no, instead, I guess they just left it hanging in dead air with absolutely no sense of closure whatsoever. And they just took it at face value. And they're like, oh, that's her. We're just going to go off of this and say everything's a-okay. Like, don't you think there would have to be some, like, standard protocol that they would go through to get this wrapped up properly? Well, there's also there's also a gaffe because the sheriff had said that it was student friends of hers that filed the missing persons report, right? So that would insinuate that it was kids at the college, right, that filed it. Do they not now know that it's a completely different girl that's walking around saying she's Rachel Newman? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Don't you think that they would say this is not her? This is not <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> and, I mean, and I would think, okay, as a police officer, wouldn't you just like – be like, okay, you're Rachel Newman. Do you have some ID that I can see? Wouldn't you confirm it? You're just going to take this girl's word for it? I would assume if you're a police officer and you're trying to verify that someone is who they say they are because they there was a missing persons report filed on that you would just ask for some ID, right? Hey, can I see your driver's license? Just We just want to make sure we want to close this case so we need to actually prove that you are who you say you are because you had a missing persons report filed. And that, that's so it's so wishwashy and just ridiculous. The, the the writing in this film is fucking atrocious. It's sloppy. It's sloppy, sloppy babies. And like they do show you a flashback of Rachel. Um, and like sure she she fits like the basic description of a Mila Kunis type. Like she has, I don't know, dark hair and whitish skin. Uh, but that's it. She sure as hell ain't no Mila Kunis. And I would not look at her and say, this is the same person. So I really don't know like what they're going off of to determine that this is safe to say that this case has been solved. Um, 
but apparently it was enough in their opinion. And for the next several months, people have been accepting of the fact that this random girl is Rachel, including her friends who filed the report to begin with. <laughs> oh my God. And then it never okay, came so back up again. It never no. came back up again. <laughs> the next, the next scene, it cuts to Rachel. Explain this to me. Why is she calling Bobby's voicemail and leaving him a message saying they're going to meet up and go away for the weekend and that she loves him. She murdered this man. He, she, he's in her, the dead corpse is in the front of her car. Troy, I think there is actually a reasoning behind this. I think what she's trying to make it seem like is that she and Bobby are driving off together. And what comes from this, the whole conclusion is masked <sighs> to be the two of these lovers accidentally going over a well, I don't want to give away what happens. Sorry, listeners. But the the big conclusion when this car blows up, it's meant to be that the two of them are in it. And uh, so, so it seems like she's killed. She has this whole thing plotted. I can't believe I'm giving this movie this much credit. Okay. But she, she, this is her plot. And so the phone call is actually a vital part of it because she's trying to make it seem like she and he are lovers and they're running off together. Okay, I guess I'll accept that. Even though she was just trying to frame... Uh, the fact that Cassandra killed herself because of him. I, because she found out okay. that he was actually in love with Mila Kunic. And so she killed herself because he didn't love her as much as he loved one Mila Kunic. Okay. I'll accept that. I'll, I'll go with it. Uh, I'll just, just like I'll go with the guy with strangle with the condom. Okay, uh, yeah. Perfect, I mean, the story perfect. is actually, I will say this. If you look at the script, the story's there. It is just horribly interpreted to screen. She has a whole plot of trying to mask it that she and Bobby are, were actually lovers. And there was this whole thing going on between the two of them. That's why Cassandra killed herself because Rachel was actually the focus of his love and affection and that they were going to run off together and have this vacation together. And that's when the car accident happened. But my God, did they do a bad job of bringing that to the screen? Ugh. Okay. So yeah, she leaves him a voice message and we see that in her closet in a bag, she has the corpse, which is now extremely decayed, I would think, Roger, that this the smell of a dead body is very distinct, very strong. This dead body has been hanging in this closet for seven months. I am pretty sure the smell not only would have taken over the room, but the entire fucking floor of this dorm would smell like a rotted corpse. I don't care if you have it in a laundry bag or not. It's still going to fucking smell awful. Nobody has smelled this. Cassandra has been in and out of this dorm room many times. She didn't smell this or notice a, the body hanging in the closet. Yeah, it, it's baffling because that plastic bag sure doesn't seem reliable. It, well, the no, the, it's ripped and the body just falls out of it. And this is when she starts these fucking one-liners. This body falls onto the floor and she's like, oh, don't you go falling apart on me, Rach. And then she drags the body, this corpse, into her car, puts it in the car with William Shatner. And she makes she gets in the car and she's like, oh, Bobby, I told you to get your beauty sleep. And I'm like, no, these one-liners are cringy. What kind of movie do you want to be? Are you trying to be a serious psychological horror film or are you trying to be a horror comedy because it's falling flat whatever the fuck you're trying to do is awful i think at that point they knew they had to have that known. they had nothing going for it so they're like let's at least try adding some one-liners in maybe at least we could get a few intentional chuckles uh sorry did not work in fact it just makes me dislike the movie more uh but i guess 
props for trying something different <laughs> in the American Psycho franchise. On the way out of town, she speeds past the cop car and almost hits it. And inside the cop car are the sheriff, the deputy, who for some reason is sitting in the back seat, and Dr. Daniels, who is sitting in the front seat. Uh, and Dr. Daniels is like, that's her, that's her. So there is this pursuit that takes place of the cop car you know, turning around and chasing her. And we get this bumbling, like I said, Looney Tune, Three Stooges type soundtrack. It's very inappropriate. Uh, and... She sees the cop car behind her. And what does she do? She speeds away and they pursue her and she immediately starts to try to run them off the road. Yeah, she's not being at all discreet here. And if her plot is exactly what I like tried to describe earlier, that she's trying to make it seem as though she and Bobby were having a love affair and that they accidentally perished when the car went off the side of the road. This is not doing that scheme any favors. She is not at all discreet. She speeds right by that cop car. She makes it very obvious. They chase after her. The deputy in the backseat is, again, cracking one-liners left and right, talking about all the different fines that she's going to get for all the things that she's doing wrong on the road. Um, It is not landing well in the midst of what it should be, a rather, I would think, intense and suspenseful sequence. So we got this stupid car chase. Uh, where she's ramming into the cop car and it's all building and building. And you really think it's going to like build up to what would be like a rather, a rather large and grandiose climax considering everything that's at stake at this point. I mean, wouldn't you think Troy? You would think, you would think there would be some, yeah, a a very explosive and, and and grand climax to all of this. But lo and behold, uh, you know, and she's trying to literally run cops off the road. You would think they would be a little bit more aggressive and assertive. All he does is he pee up, takes his gun and shoots it in the air a couple times, which causes her to decide she better pull over. So she does. And as they approach, they get out, the cops get out. And as they approach the car, what does she do? Very predictably, she speeds away. So they have to get back in the car and chase her. And as they go around this curve they see that she has taken bobby's body and he's propped against a guardrail is that correct yeah kind of hard i think yeah it's very confusing it's very confusing because if she's trying to be discreet in any way shape or form she really fucks herself over because when she stops the car they walk over they see his body it's clear he's dead like his intestines are coming out of his stomach it appears uh, and so, and then she speeds off. So they all are aware that Bobby's dead. And then apparently she's bought herself enough time to stop the car, take the body out, prop it against the guardrail and like plot this whole next segment that's about to unfold, which is cuckoo bananas. Uh, but so they stop, they see the body, he's laying there. And then out of fucking nowhere, her car comes speeding around the corner, speeds right by them, almost hits the the, the three men and it goes right through the guardrail and plummets over the edge of the cliff and explodes into what is a absolutely horrible digital fire explosion. It's so bad. It's terrible. I have that horrible CGI fire. Yeah. Um, And all they can do is sit there and, and, and the doctor's like, Oh, Bobby. Well, and that's it. That's how it concludes. Like that's how it ends. But tell me this, Troy, does it not seem like, they're reacting as though Bobby is in the vehicle. That's what I he, I know. They because yeah, the doctor's like, oh Bobby. Well, and to build off of that even more, when you listen to the news reports, they talk about that there being multiple bodies found in the 
the burning remains of the vehicle. This really, really seems to me like a, a, a big mistake in the execution, whether it be in the writing or in, in how they interpreted the finale. Because if her plot were to, if how I took her plot to be um, developed, what, what I took it to be was that she was trying to make it seem like she and Bobby were having this kind of affair and they both died in this explosion. And that was the end of it. If that were the actual case, then for him to be in the car, that would make sense. They would all kind of make, strangely make sense. As it is executed, as we see it, it definitely does not. There are way too many holes. This thing is nothing but Swiss cheese. Uh, and maybe I'm trying to give American Psycho 2 too much credit uh, in, in how it was originally conceived, but it seems like someone made a really grave error uh, in, in translating the script to screen because it does not land at all. And this ending is fucking stupid. It is so bad. The ending is awful and it makes literally zero sense. I'm sorry. The ending is offensive to, to viewers because it is so fucking stupid and unplausible. It just it did nothing but pissed me off. And I should not have gotten so pissed off about the ending of a film, but I was literally seething Roger because I'm like, this makes zero fucking sense in no world. Would this actually happen and be successful? First of all, okay. She's dead. She had, you know, Bobby's body somehow in the car with her. And she also had, we have to keep in mind, Roger, she had the real Rachel's body in her car. Remember? Okay. So you would think, you know, they find this car explosion. They, they, they're finding dental records and bones. And you would think that they would be able to, to run some DNA tests and figure out that, uh, you know, why are they calling? I don't know. It's just, why are they calling the killer? They're still calling her Rachel. Yeah. You know, after the, after the, um, the film ends, there is this whole like strew of news segments where they're talking about how Rachel is the most has killed eight people and we get flashes of like all the dead bodies, including Gertrude who's on the floor of her kitchen, even though she had a missing persons report file, we see the poor kid dead on in the library that nobody mentioned throughout the movie. Why wasn't it mentioned that a student was brutally murdered on campus? Who the fuck knows? But you're trying to tell me they, they have not figured out yet that the killer was not this Rachel girl. Well, let's also talk about the fact like, just in the sense of execution alone, like, yes, first of all, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but you've got it all building up and building up and building up and you have this big grand car chase and you really seem like you're starting to like, I don't know, head towards something big and climactic. And then you just have a car speed out of nowhere, go over a cliff and explode. And like, that's the end of it. I'm sorry. I have never been more like let down by a finale than I was by this moment. And I know, again, I'm giving, I'm giving this too much credit that I would even expect something better. But in the sense of pacing, like, and you talked about this earlier, this movie needed a way better editor. I mean, the script was shit to begin with. But at least in the sense of, of, of pacing this out, um, this whole final, like, 10 minutes or, or so of this climax are really just awkwardly broken up into these weird segments so by the time it gets to this final moment it seems so out of fucking nowhere and it seems like you just really had no closure or payoff 
I guess that's that's the term I would use. Like, where's the payoff? Like, what was this really building to? What am I taking away from this? What am I supposed to feel here? I have no idea. It's just the ending just hits you like a bag of bricks out of nowhere. And then suddenly you're kind of like transitioning into this epilogue moment that we're getting to now that you're talking about. We're talking about the character of Rachel. Um, and And we're treated like to this montage of images of the body reveals, but yeah, like you're right. It doesn't make any sense at all because it's pretty clear that these bodies were kind of just naturally discovered on their own. So who is filing the missing persons reports? Because these people are like in there, the ones in the dorm, the other ones in her home. Like it's pretty easy to discover them. And who, and, and, and like I said, how, how we never learn her real identity. Um, and I cannot buy the fact that the, 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 I mean, this is eight people were murdered. I cannot buy the fact that the investigation was so sloppy that they weren't able to figure out who this girl really was and that she isn't Rachel, that she's who, she, because her fingerprints are everywhere. The bitch was not very, uh, you know, careful about her, her murders there. There she touched everything in Cassandra's dorm room. She's been touching everything in her dorm room. You're trying to tell me they can't get DNA from her dorm room that she was in for seven fucking months and run it through a system and realize who this is or that it's not Rachel. Why are they still calling her Rachel? Troy, such a, Troy on top of all of that, the main victim, I guess I'll say in all of this, the survivor, Eric met her parents like was introduced to her parents, the the actual birth parents of this girl, her actual identity, he encountered them. Don't tell me that there's not a way to track back to these people and figure out who she actually is. All you had to do is go back into the into the restaurant and be like, hey, you know, I'm I'm assuming, I'm just gonna make an assumption here. I guess you can't really make assumptions, but I'm assuming that maybe that the parents have paid with a credit card, right? Uh, there you go. Call the restaurant and be like, hey, that table that was here that one day, who what's what's the name on the credit card that they paid for paid with? That's it. Yeah. They're making it seem like this big fucking mystery. And I'm like, I'm sorry, there's so many ways that like this could come to a, a far more solid conclusion. It, it just it's it's full of plot holes. And can we just talk about how stupid fucking stupid this epilogue is oh my god he's one of the things that he says because eric is like basically teaching a lecture now uh, it's how full circle now he's teaching a class and talking to them about about serial killers and focusing on rachel and he says to them he wrote a book he wrote a book he did write a book and he says to them about rachel in a perfect world she'd still be alive really really like are you telling me that in a perfect world this fucking bitch who just massacred all these people would still be alive that doesn't make sense to me at all rachel is one in a billion (laughs) that's even the name of his book one in a billion okay so after his little lecture he is doing a book signing and who waltzes up to him and i know they threw glasses on her and pulled her hair back in a ponytail. But Mila Kunis has a very distinct look. Yeah, I'm sorry. And voice. Like, her voice. Mila Kunis is like Anna Ferris. She has that very distinct voice. You don't even have to hear. I mean, you can just hear the voice and know, okay, that's Mila Kunis. You, she has that voice. Who the fuck was she think she was fooling? Well, she sure seems to fool him because he doesn't seem like he's very confident in knowing whether or not that could or could not be Mila Kunis. He looks at her and he's like, is it? Could it be? And he has such like 
he has an element of such confusion and doubt. And like, he, he seems like Meryl Streep at the end of doubt, the movie doubt where she goes, <laughs> I have doubts. That's the look he has on his face. And I'm sorry, but that squeaky helium voice alone is making it very clear to me that that's one Mila Kunitz, but uh, Eric Dane, light over here sure doesn't seem very confident in that fact and he watches her walk away with squinty eyes questioning could that be her well and she makes it pretty obvious because she she has him sign her book with the name elizabeth mcguire i don't know if he's having the flashback or if we the, the movie thinks we're fucking stupid and don't remember when she tells him that she would be elizabeth mcguire when she asks him who, who you would be but we get that flashback and again i don't know if he is actually having that or they're just reminding us. Oh, here, look, remember that's who she said she wanted to be, but she signs it Elizabeth McGuire and he looks at her and he's like, you can't be. And she's like, what David one in a billion. And she walks away. And he, like you said, he is very like unsure of himself, even though it's very obviously Mila Kunis to the point where he asks the next student that comes up behind him to sign the book. He's like, Hey, do you know that girl? that Elizabeth McGuire and this student goes, Oh, you mean agent McGuire? Oh yeah. Everyone knows her. She made history as becoming the first sophomore to be accepted into Quantico. Uh, Listen, I have, I have a few, I have a few gripes here. First of all, they totally missed out on an opportunity to end this movie with the song She's a Beauty by the Tubes. You know that song? One in a million girls. One oh, in a million oh, I, girls. She's Roger, a beauty. you know damn well this movie couldn't afford the rights to that fucking song. I fucking love that song. Oh my God. You know, a little pop uh, pop culture point real quick. You know the child in that music music video is actually Alexis Arquette. Oh, you know okay. That, that? Little pop culture trait for you. Um, but yeah, no, they couldn't definitely not have afforded one in a million girls. She's a beauty by the tubes, though they may try. <laughs> yeah, no, look at the lackluster locations they had to use for this fucking movie. No, they're lucky they got that community college to lend itself to be this Washington Academy that's supposed to be so prestigious. But I also need to state with this ending, Huge issue. So clearly she's stolen the identity of the real Elizabeth McGuire down to the point that she is like masquerading as her wearing her glasses, her same taut bun, her same neck scarf. She's become Elizabeth McGuire. But Elizabeth McGuire, the real Elizabeth McGuire, actually like had gone on to accept a position at, at uh, Con- uh, is it Quantico? Quantico, Quantico. Yeah. Quantico. So she actually had accepted a position that was a plot point mentioned earlier. So what I'm assuming is like, I'm guessing she had to have killed her as well to start stealing her persona. But it doesn't make sense because they're saying that she was a sophomore when she took the position. Whereas the real Elizabeth McGuire was a teacher's aide who naturally transitioned into the position so like it doesn't make sense unless she's just single white femaleing this woman and trying to become her for her own personal entertainment i don't even know what's happened to the the real elizabeth mcguire because she's never seen again no well here's the thing it doesn't make sense because in order to get accepted into quantico you'd have to go through an interview process it's not just you don't just like get accept you go an interview you have to you know you meet with admissions people that you know, decide whether, so people have seen the real Elizabeth McGuire that work at Quantico that are there. They've seen her. Okay. Plus this is two years later, right? Uh, 
The FBI training program, I'm not sure how long it is, but I'm assuming it's quite it's a quite a, a hefty length amount of time. Wouldn't the wouldn't the real Elizabeth Guire still be there? Or That's yeah, what I'm it saying. Make it, is she try she's single white female? Uh, I think what's going on, and we're not even seeing it at play. This is too much. The movie's already an hour and forty minutes in. I think there's a whole other subplot where single white female is happening as as we speak. She is in the process of becoming Elizabeth McGuire, not to be cute, confused with Lizzie McGuire, the TV show. She is trying to become Elizabeth McGuire. Elizabeth McGuire is, in my mind, still alive. They are boarding together. They are rooming together at Quantico. <laughs> and she is in process of stealing her identity. That's the sequel that we just never got to see. Thank God. I mean, I'd pay to see that. <sighs> Mila Kunish becoming this other woman, literally stealing the storyline. From single white female, I mean, I can't get more excited for a title, to be honest. Give me that prequel. And I guess we're just to assume that the FBI is so fucking incompetent that they are going to allow this girl to call herself, that calls herself Lizzie. Don't you think to get into Quantico, you would have to have some pretty solid credentials not only i mean this is an fbi training program we're not talking about getting hired at mcdonald's i'm assuming they're going to want to see some legit birth certificates you know anything that to prove that you are who you are you would have to go through a, a major security screening process so how did she how was she able to get all this stuff to get into fbi quantico training as elizabeth mcguire it doesn't make any fucking sense. And we are we are to buy that the police, the FBI are so fucking inept that they can't figure out that this girl isn't really Rachel. And the FBI is just going to allow a serial killer to, to, to get into their program without any background. It's so frustrating. Like you cannot convince me to get into F the FBI training program is, is so simple that you can just take on an identity and get accepted. Well, I guess at the end of the day, all this comes down to is that we are just completely underestimating Mila Kunis's abilities, that she is not only a serial killer, but she's a mastermind of disguise. She is amazing at, uh, at creating false identities, replicating birth certificates. She's done it all because she's clearly made it work. She's there. She's now living as Elizabeth McGuire. Um, and nobody's questioning it. In fact, everybody seems to be rather impressed with her. Uh, and everything worked out perfectly fine for her in the long run. Shocking as it may seem. She's the all-American girl. She is. Absolutely. The film ends with another little voiceover of her saying that she needed to tell David or to let him know that she's still alive. Because otherwise, if she went through all of this and did all of this to get to, to, get to Quantico and nobody knew about it, then it was all for nothing. And the film ends. And I was seething and I, I was just seething at this film's fucking stupidity and how insulting it is to its audience. Especially when you think of how tight and taut and well executed and well scripted the, the initial film was, because it definitely had a, a dark humor to it, but overall it was such like a deep dive into somebody's psychosis. You know, it was, it was so expertly written and thoughtful and um, really like, took the time to develop that character and how they worked and how they operated and why they did what they did. This movie tosses all that in the window and instead opts to lean in towards cheesy one-liners that don't land and poorly executed cutaway kill sequences. And it really is just offensive. It is an offensive title, uh, daring to call itself a sequel 
to the far superior American Psycho. It is not. It is only in title, uh, a sequel by title and title alone. Uh, and for that, it, it should be ashamed. It's uh, one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. It's it's it, This is a cash grab of the worst kind, and the producer should be ashamed of themselves. You know, I, I know that even Brett Easton Ellis, the author of the first American Psycho book, has spoken out heavily ag- against this film. It's just insulting. But, Slasher Junkie, we do thank you for giving us the experience of watching it. Now I can say I've seen American Psycho 2. Yeah, I mean, I hope he's happy. I hope he's sitting there cackling behind that mustache, because I know he is, twirling it like a maniacal like 1930s villain um, that he made us sit through this fucking shit fest. But here we are. We did it. <laughs> we did it for you, because you're a fan, I guess. Uh, and so you've earned this review. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you leave us a goddamn fucking good review on our Apple podcast, because we went through hell and back for you with Mila Please Kunis. Please do. Please go leave us a five-star rating just for having to watch this piece of shit. We would greatly appreciate it. Um, I mean, I don't even think this is a case of a movie being so bad it's good. This movie is just fucking terrible. Um, and that's all I'm going to say. We've talked over two hours <laughs> about American Psycho 2, which is two hours far too long. But guys, thank you again. Remember, check out our Patreon. Check out Apple Podcasts. Give us a review. Um, and we are not going to tell you what our next pick is. We're going to keep you in suspense. And it's, trust me, it's another uh, goodie. A unique choice. Quote, unquote. <laughs> uh, but it'll be it'll be another great episode. So thank you again, guys. And we bid you adieu. Farewell. Until next time. Good night. Good night.